Hello, everyone. Thank you, as always, for listening. A reminder, you can watch Between the Sheets live on Twitch on Monday nights at 7 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash critical role, or it goes up on Wednesdays on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash critical role. On today's episode, I sat down with the legendary Matthew Mercer. We discuss growing up weird in Florida, his path to a career in voiceover and video games, some of the critical role origins, and the legacy he's hoping he's creating. So much more than that. Uh, this one really got me. I, I, I hope you enjoy it. Matthew Mercer, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, man. At last, we've arrived. <laughs> Cheers, indeed. my friend. Cheers, indeed. What are we drinking today? This delicious... Uh... This is uh, dark and stormy. Nothing too fancy. Mm. Like me. This is my one my one good outfit. Your one good outfit. My, my semi-fancy appearance, so... When we talked about what you wanted to drink for this episode, this came up. How come? You, you really like this drink. I like it. Uh, I'm more of a rum drinker when I do drink, and uh, I don't know. I tend to like things that are sweet. I, I grew up being called a girly drinker, which makes no sense because I know guys who drink sweeter cocktails more than ladies. Um, yeah, I love a good lemon drop every once in a while. right. Yeah. I like this. It's simple. It's easy to order. Not so many bartenders, you know, ask you, wait, how's that made? Mm -hmm, so, right. It's my go good go-to. And it has, a, uh, it has a name that has mystery and intrigue and, you know, you sound cool when you go up and order one. Sure. Yeah, if you're somebody else, maybe. I'd... <laughs> Can I get a dark and stormy, please? Could I please um, have a uh, dark and stormy? Yeah, that's pretty accurate to mm -hmm. my, uh, my approach to any bar, really. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, guess, I guess the name does help, too. I'm very much a, a cloudy, rainy weather person. I love gray skies. I love when it's like a heavy downpour outside. So I guess the, the name has an allure to me as well. Do you feel more creative in that environment? I do. I do. Rather than when it's hot and you want to be outdoors and like, you know, doing stuff at the beach. I don't go to the beach. How do you, how do you go out? I don't go outdoors. So I'm not really beach. connecting with you. Yeah, I don't go to the beach. It's a bad start to this interview already. I'm just trying to be relatable <laughs> to all of our beach bum fans out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I For some reason, like cloudy, rainy weather, the sound of, of rain outside has always been a very inspiring atmosphere to me to the point where now... You know, I go to sleep almost every night with the sound of rain, like on my Spotify and mm -hmm. repeat, just to kind of help me get to that quick and easy rest. You grew up Matthew Miller. Yes. As many people know. Mm -hmm. um, there's probably a billion Matthew Millers, which is why you, part of why you had to change your name, That's right? exactly why, yeah. When I, when I joined the Screen Actors Guild years ago, uh, there were 17 Matt Millers at the time, and there's plenty more now since... And uh, Mercer was my family name a few generations back, and I figured it was close enough to where if I heard it out loud, my ear would still pick it up, and I'd register it as possibly being referring to me. Mm. Um, yeah, and it sounded a little cooler to me than Miller did. Yeah, it's cool. Maybe because I was just around it my whole life. Mm -hmm. when, do you know why your family changed the name a few generations back? I think it was less of a change the name more than they married into a oh. Miller right. uh, individual, and that, that thread just sparked off and went in our direction, and so Miller stuck. What's your heritage? My heritage, from what I've been able to, to glean from previous uh, family members' research and, and the wonders of, of 23andMe, mm -hmm. um, mostly Irish and Scottish, UK, like just right in the, that you know, UK Isle mm. circuit there, uh, primarily Scottish. And um, 
A lot of my friends who've gone back looking into their heritage have been excited to find out that they came from this majestic clan or this, you know, family that, you know, up on the North Shore, they have this great castle and all these great things they can look forward to visiting for their, their, their family bloodline and have all this mystique about their, their past. Um, my family just stole horses. They were just a bunch of thieves, and that's that's about as cool as it got. And uh-huh. <laughs> to the the furthest back we could go, it ended there, which leads me to believe they just lived in mud. And when they went like, "Let's steal a horse," and that's where it all took off. That's, right. that's where this began. But then they probably, you know, what if they became the people that started the Kentucky Derby? But <laughs> <laughs> You need a piece. I, I I feel like I should I should be you know get a nice hat at least. You I know, was just gonna say <laughs> I was just gonna say how do I not get any of the hat inheritance with the I Kentucky know. Derby? I'm gonna look into this. I'm gonna go ahead and we'll and, find out. Yeah, I'll go into ancestry.com and see just how many hats there are waiting for me. I would love it if you found out you were the heir to something like that, and then you just walked away <laughs> from all of this because you got like all this. Sorry money. guys, I got that cool hat money. Everybody goes. He's not in this for the money. He's in this for the story and the community, all this stuff, and then the second you win the lottery or you find out that you're you know you come from money you're like i'm out nobody ever hears from you again to be fair my my lifelong journey to try and find a hat that fits me and doesn't look ridiculous i think should end somewhere like that hats are tough for you yeah we try to put them we try to put you in hats when we go places so that we can you know get to tgi fridays without you know getting uh Uh, our our one uh one recourse (laughs) beanies look great on you though because you get the little hair come out of the bottom and it just looks cool yeah yeah and and embrace that that high school stoner I never was. Yeah, I always look like I'm gonna knock over a check cashing place when I wear a beanie. Yeah, not just the beanie, but <laughs> more so. It increases <laughs> increases the percentage. <laughs> so where'd you grow up? Originally, I grew up in Florida, like Central Florida. Um, my uh, parents were both pseudo creatives. Mom was a writer. My dad was a musician. My grandmother had worked for years with, ironically, Burt Reynolds, if you've been following oh, Critical really? Role. Like, I, I grew up with a weird, uh, kind of adjacent Burt Reynolds theme. So she worked with him in a number of films and was the head of his uh, production studio, Burt Reynolds Productions. Whoa. Um, and she ran the Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater in Jupiter, Florida, for a number of years, in which my father did audio there. My mom was one of the, uh, uh, was an apprentice for a while and then was a producer. Um, that's where she met Darren DePaul. That's where Darren that's right. Darren DePaul that's met right. my my parents and uh, my grandmother before I was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a surreal kind of comeback in recent years. That's I remember talking about friends. that when he came on the show and just how serendipitous that whole thing was. It was, was the craziest thing. He, he played D&D with your mom. Yeah, yeah. And he posted a picture on Twitter one day of like, this is me in the, the apprenticeship, pro, apprenticeship program. Uh, and my mom was in the picture and it was just like, what? what wow. is going on? What a weird small world. Yeah. But yeah, so, so that, that's where it started. So lived in Central Florida, lived in, in kind of what was essentially West Palm Beach, um, the poorer side of West Palm Beach, because there's two sides to it. There's the ridiculously affluent. Where the people retire and they want to go like yeah. own a condo and spend, yeah. yeah. And, and call the police on, on people that on don't people. like themselves. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we lived on the other side of the tracks. Mm. And uh, my parents definitely kind of didn't have a lot of money and they worked really hard just to ensure that me and my brother had a really, really good upbringing. So I'm very thankful for that. But we've just moved from apartment to apartment almost every year. We've had kind of a very nomadic life, especially in Florida in those early mm. years. And I uh, lived there until I was about eight. And then you moved to LA. My mother was hired on as a writer for uh, Burt Reynolds Productions. My grandmother at the time was head of his production company called uh, Burt Reynolds Productions. Very uh, astute title mm-hmm, at the mm-hmm. time. To work on Evening Shade, which was a show that he was doing in the early 90s. 
And that was enough for my family to just uproot and head to the West Coast. There wasn't a whole lot going for us in Florida. We'd kind of had not a lot of good financial prospects for a long time. And I think my family was looking forward to a, a new start. Um, so we just did a two, little over a two week road trip across the US in our, in our van. Your parents and you and your brother? Yeah. Wow. The little U-Haul tractor behind us with what little we took with us and, and uh, made our way out to California. What kind of writing did your mom do? What kind of music did your dad do? Uh, my mom, she she did mainly story writing, uh, scripts, uh, a little bit of kind of playwriting, tinkering, but nothing that really took off. And she wrote a few episodes for Evening Shade and did some other work here and there. Um, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the projects she worked on didn't quite come to fruition uh, in the later years, and there, there are reasons beyond her control for that. Mm. My dad, all kinds of music. He raised me on Beatles and Pink Floyd and uh, and Moody Blues, Alan Parsons Project, everything in, in that realm of music. So that was very much his specialty. But he played plenty of instruments, and growing up, uh, every Christmas was him giving me some sort of instrument that he could afford, and mm. me messing with it for a week and then going, nah, and then giving it to my brother, and then he would master it. So he became a musician too. Wow. Uh, and I just, I was that one who couldn't quite, couldn't quite find the interest of, of picking up an instrument. You appreciate music. Oh, very lot, much so. But just the act of trying to get in and learn how to play it, it just didn't catch with you. Yeah, and and it's kind of frustrating in hindsight, because I would love to have had that 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 skill. And I, I appreciate what musicians do, and, and, and uh, you know, to this day, my dad's still a, a busker, um, mm. you know, for a living in Hawaii. So, like, I, I really have a love for people that, that create music. Uh, but just um, wasn't something I think it was in the cards for me, unfortunately. What did growing up without a lot, those first eight years in Florida and switching apartments so much and everything, what did, what did growing up on the, you know, the poorer side of things teach you? Uh, it taught me to... to appreciate the things that you have most definitely and to earn the few things that you did mm. uh, manage to, to get. My, my parents were very good about making sure that if it was something we wanted as kids, we had to earn it by keeping things clean, which was a good way of also mitigating what they could afford to get us. They're like, right. well, we would love to get that, but if you keep your stuff, you know, your room clean for the next six months, you'll get that little talking Roger Rabbit doll. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that definitely, uh, I'm, I'm thankful because it instilled appreciation for for things like that and, and, and for what you have. Um, it meant moving a lot of schools. So in those younger years especially, it was different friends circles at almost every year and kind of never really put my roots down with too many folk at that time. And then moving to Florida, I just lost track of everybody after that. So it's a compl completely clean slate coming out here. Yeah, I was gonna ask, if I mean, you're so young when you moved, there's really no way to keep in touch with the friends that you did have at that time? Not really. Yeah. And th those years were awkward too, because I was I was a heavy stutterer at the time, right. and uh, that made it hard to communicate. Uh, I had one of my good friends that I made at the time, this was like, I, I'd segment my childhood by obsessions. Like during the Ninja Turtle phase, <laughs> um, right. one of my best friends was deaf, and because both of us kind of had difficulty in communication, we found a kinship there. And so me and him mm. were just obsessed with Ninja Turtles, and we'd draw and, and, and uh, watch the shows together and play with action figures and stuff. But yeah, then uprooting everything coming out here was its own unique adventure and, a, and a, a change of gears. I can imagine. You mentioned that you had a stuttering problem growing up, and I've heard you talk about this a little bit, but how, how early did that start for you to where you were like, this is kind of a thing versus, oh, everybody doesn't talk like this? Uh, I wasn't self-aware of it, I don't think, until I started going to school. You know, it was just how I talked and I would fight through the catches. Mm. Um, 
but it wasn't until I got to school and began to get teased about it or, you know, I began to notice that other kids didn't have this, even though my brother didn't stutter at all. I, I didn't really realize it until then. And uh, my father, who was a heavy stutterer and, you know, still, both of us still carry a hint of it, him a little more than me. Um, he immediately put me into speech therapy. He's like, I don't want you to go through what I went through wow. in elementary school. So I went through years of speech therapy through early elementary school, helped me kind of realize, and I think I think what they realized is the brain was going too fast for the speech to catch up. Right. And so you, your thoughts would just be racing and the mouth would eventually get caught up and then you have to restart or kind of hold for a second to kind of bring your thoughts back and, uh, and, and circle on what point you were trying to make. Mm. And uh, we managed to increase my speech, which was great for stuttering, but it also meant that I talked really fast. And so there was a time where I got teased for talking way too quickly. And, oh, interesting. Uh, running my words together. And me and my friend Ian in middle school, we would kind of almost have our own language. We would both talk so quickly that my parents would joke that they had no idea what we were saying. But you're like, I'm free now. I I, I have, you know, I have the tools to be able to talk. I'm going to make up for all this sort of lost time where I wasn't able to communicate the way I wanted to. Yeah. And it was funny. It was actually through theater later in life that I learned to have to slow my speech down. Because mm. it used to just be this smattering run of, of consonants and vowels that occasionally I'd have to repeat myself because people couldn't understand what I was saying. It was so quick. And when I get excited, it's still I still get caught up in that that speech pattern. But, uh, but yeah, through theater and things like that later on helped me kind of slow down be more conscious of my cadence and be a much better public speaker than I think I ever would have been had I been let to continue my path. Or to try and overcome it on your own. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> yeah, but you're grateful that your dad put you in the speech therapy. Oh, very much so. Right? Very much so. It, 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 it taught me a lot of, of just really good techniques about being self-aware of my speech, um, of learning how to verbalize ideas and, uh, and not feel bad about that impediment mm. um, as I worked through it for many years. It's, it's, something, it's, it's something that you can't control. I mean, you weren't, you weren't born going, I'm going to, I'm going to talk differently than everybody else. So yeah, you just work through it. Yeah, essentially. And, and as a, and becoming a voice actor was kind of a cool full circle to that experience, though it also means that when those few catches come up, here and there in the booth, it's extra embarrassing and mm. I have to ask you to be patient. Certain words back to back will catch me. Remember is a big word. Remember, right. Like saying that in the middle of a sentence, I'll say, well, I remember, you know, it'll come up like that. Right. Um, certain phrases I'll still get caught on and have to push through a little bit. Um, but thankfully they're fairly minimal and people are fairly understanding. Your brother, Andrew, older yeah. or younger? Younger by two years. What was your relationship like with him, being that you were the only two kids in the family, and two boys? And two boys, yeah. We um, we were very, we, for most of our life, been very close, and still very close to this day. I'm really appreciative of having somebody to grow up with, uh, you know, so close to my age. It wasn't always the case in the younger years. There were definitely times where, as the older brother, uh, I would terrorize. Mm -hmm. I had this new little toy that reacted to things I did. This was great. And there's videos of us, <laughs> of me just like pushing him over once he started walking. <laughs> then he'd get up and be confused as to why gravity is being such an asshole to him. And then you hear my dad behind the camera go like, Matt, mm -hmm. Matt, no. Mm -hmm. I'd look back at the camera, push him over again. Oh. I, was, I was a little dick for those early years. Yep, I understand. Um, but he got me back. There was one time the parents tell us where they heard me yelling. And like screaming, and they ran upstairs thinking I hurt myself. And they found me face down on the ground, my brother on my back, holding my hair and hitting me with a ladle. 
And uh, apparently that was the moment he snapped. And uh, we were good after that. Apparently we were we were we were fine. We had hit even keel. Mutual respect at that yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, you guys understood that. Like, okay, there is there is a give to this take. Yeah, and uh, from that point forward, I think we were we were we were very close. We we shared a lot of our interests, uh, especially in later years when he was kind of finding himself in high school. We shared a lot of music together. Uh, we always shared rooms for the most part. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm still love him dearly this year and. Even though he's like four inches taller than me, it's, he is. Yeah, it's kind and of. And I bullshit. hear he, he he has a somewhat of a resemblance to me. Probably a lot more handsome. Yeah, but he yeah. has some features. He definitely are... has the Portland beard. Interesting. Uh, yeah, the Portland <laughs> beard. Yeah, because he's up in the northwest. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, he's up in there. So him. Uh, yeah, he's. Uh, it's kind of unfair that I feel like the prototype, and he got the uh, the final height mm. release version. But you know, it's fine. Despite <laughs> the the teasing and all the things you do to a sibling uh, and with a sibling, um, were you the protective older brother throughout stuff in life with him? I was in the later years. In the later it years. wasn't something I felt, we didn't feel there was much of a need for protection from other kids per se. Right. Um, there were some rougher times uh, where I think there was more of a taking one of my wing. He's. Uh, and I'm sorry if Andrew's watching this, but he he was generally, believe it or not, the more sensitive of the two of us. Really? Um, especially in those early years. And um, there were times, like in like our middle school, where we were homeless for about, I think it was about eight months or so. We were living out of motels and in our van. And uh, he was very kind of having a hard time with that. So at that time, I kind of took him under my wing and uh, reintroduced him to a lot of my interests and, and just kind of looked after him then. And then in high school, he definitely went through a number of years where he was trying to find himself mm. uh, and went through a lot of different phases and cycling friends groups to a certain extent. And since he was two years younger than me coming in at the same high school I was in, I felt protective of anything that got in his way. So, uh, and, and being a person who was bullied through my own years as well was wanting to, to stand up where I could. Um, not that I was an imposing figure, especially once he right. grew he, taller he, than he I had did. His growth spurt, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> you were like, but, um, you better watch out. This guy could just keep going and then yeah, he'll be unstoppable. Yeah. But to this day we have just this this super long list of inside jokes from our childhood that we'll still text or call each other and just throw at each other mm -hmm. just, to, just to mess up our day and have a good time. So I'm, I love him dearly. Outside of getting teased for your speech impediment, why would people bully you? For what reason? Uh, I was a quieter kid when I was younger. Um, when, I was, when I wasn't around my family, when I was around my parents, I was a ham. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but uh, I was bullied because I was quiet, because I was uh, had thick glasses for many years, and that was a natural you know, thing that people gravitated yeah, towards, and they just had power trips. and. and early school years. Up until about middle school or so, I didn't have a lot of friends, partially because you were moving you're transient. So, so constantly. So I was, I was kind of playing solo, except for like a handful of, of people that, that I clung to. Um, and then of course, as, as the body begins to change around adolescence, my hair became really greasy. I had a, an off and on like scalp infection thing through my childhood that I would go through a lot of medications for my my scalp and my hair, and so I'd come back to my binder with the stuff like dye dandruff dork and shit like that written on my stuff. Kids are kids, kids are, are terrible. They're terrible. They're um, terrible. Uh, so, and I was like just generally self conscious of myself, uh, and have been from a very young age physically. 
um, it, it wasn't until later in life that I realized that I have like a, a, a fair amount of, of uh, body dysmorphic disorder where- Talk to me about that. What's what's that experience like? Yeah, I mentioned I mentioned that a little bit last year on a on a stream. I remember we did that, a mental yeah. health day. Um, but uh, so it's it's a it's it's a, it's a mental disorder where you essentially, no matter the situation, for the most part, perceive yourself as a very unsightly, ugly, and uh, just repulsive person. Hmm. Um, for me, it's 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 it's, you know, it's it's physically based, and it's uh, uh like I was the kid that the, the one of the scariest phrases I could hear were like pool party, or beach party, because you'd be exposed and you would feel like everyone's gonna everyone's gonna feel the same way about my body as I feel about my yeah. body. And I was always the kid that wore the shirt. Mm. I never ever went shirtless at any of these events. I didn't feel comfortable. Uh, this is like back to. I must have been like 10, 11, even then. Like I just did not feel comfortable, and and still largely don't really feel comfortable in my body most of the time. Like, you know, finding ways to sit comfortably and and uh you know it's 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 a unique, subtle struggle in in, in my life. But what, what has that process been like? Because, you know, with things that are um a mental disorder or something that's outside of your control, um, how do you overcome that and push through? And it's not that it's not that the sign of overcoming it would be I wear I don't wear a shirt to the beach anymore because it's right. an internal struggle. Yeah, I still so, do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's not that's not a sign that you are now free of this you know thing. But how, how did you manage it and how did you process it and work through it and 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 how do you still do? To I'm, this I'm still working through it. Yeah, it's still it's still a thing. Um, and it's I, I will say living in LA doesn't made it easier. I'm surrounded by very very pretty people on a daily basis and a very and, image conscious culture. Yeah, where it's it's on the billboards. It's everywhere. Everywhere. And so um, a lot of it is just being aware of it has been helpful. It was very hard in high school, um, especially uh, in a social space where people are starting to, to come into their identity and there is a, a definite social hierarchy that begins to develop. Um, I, I can't say I dealt with it well, meaning while I didn't externalize it, there was a lot of self-loathing. Mm in those years that um, I just kind of internalized and didn't let anybody else see. Um, it's not easy. And it's, it's you know, even to this to this day, um, you know, I either try and rush past a mirror if I'm going to the shower so I don't see myself, or if I do, I stop and obsess all the perceived imperfections mm -hmm. and generally leave very angry with myself. Um, and it's just something you work with and you work through. To hear that it's still something you work through, I'm sure, is encouraging for people who maybe are younger and feel that way. Because I hope it's like so. it's like, hey, you know, you can still you can still get very far um, and find healthy ways to work through that stuff. I feel like, yeah, and it's and and it's. I want to also specify this isn't me. The few times I've mentioned it, people are like, "Oh no, no, you you know, you're great, you look great." It's like that, that's, that, none I mean, of that. You don't need that. I appreciate it, but that's not that doesn't help either because it's it's. I'm not looking for positive reinforcement. I'm not looking for people to tell me otherwise because because you can't. Mm -hmm. It's 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 something that's internal that I just have to struggle through. Um, and part of the reason I've I've since I've discovered the the soft long vest and I wear them so often, I like it because it's a unique style to me. But I also like it because it kind of obscures my torso. It's like yeah. it's actually a it's a personal comfort thing where mm. I feel like it's something I could wear where I don't have to constantly find a way 
to adjust when I'm seating uh, or where I'm where I have to figure out a way to where I don't look absolutely grotesque in public. You can just be comfortable and then perform comfortably. Yeah. And uh, we always thought those things activate the dungeon master powers because <laughs> it does seem though it, you can tell though when you have them on you do feel you you do come across like you're more free and you're more yourself <laughs> and whatever else. And, and that, if that's, I think that's if part that's of it. What too. it does and that's a tool. Yeah, it's 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 finding those little little things day to day that help me feel a little more comfortable. Hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've been trying to find time to work out more. Uh, that does seem to help a little bit in dietary things, just for general energy level. Uh, though I've never really happy um but yeah it's just it's just a thing I'm, i work through and um yeah it's it's it, it definitely made a lot of the early bullying in my life sting mm. a lot more whenever it was an appearance-based uh insult uh i i do have <laughs> i have a lot to thank my friend ian show in middle school i was i was that was the token white kid in a group of like uh, you know East Indian, Pakistani, Korean, Japanese kids who are all just we found our common thread in video games and anime and uh, my friend Ian Cho was like my 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 BFF and and my ride or die friend through all middle school and early high school. He was this quiet little scrawny Korean kid who was secretly built like Bruce Lee and idolized him. Oh wow! And I remember there was one time in the bus and I think it was seventh grade where one kid who was been terrorizing me for a while sat in the seat behind us and kept like muttering shitty things over the side and punching the back of the seat. At you? At me. And uh, it got more and more intense, I just got quiet. And my friend Ian started telling him like, stop it, stop it. And the kid kind of looked him in the eyes and did one final heavy punch to the back. And so Ian just popped him right in the face. Kid got really quiet. Next day came to school with a big old welt in his chin and then challenged my friend Ian to a fight. And all of his friends were backing him up. You know, typical like you know, mm -hmm. chest beating. Meet me behind the flagpole. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm 12. I'm going to show you how much of a man I am. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know Ian well enough. He'd been taking you know taekwondo and hapkido for many years. That this was not going to go well for the other kid. But how, how did it go? Oh, Ian destroyed yes. him. He destroyed yes. him. We love you, Ian. He was he's amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm sad I lost touch with him, but uh, but he uh, yeah he he definitely came came to bat that one time and, and he didn't bother us much after that. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Part of the reason I think voiceover was more of my client than on-camera stuff was because I, as much as I tried it and I've done some on-camera things, I've rarely ever watched my stuff back, even Critical Role. Like I have a hard time going back and watching episodes you've already recorded unless I'm focusing on the players because I don't like seeing myself on camera. Mm. So it's very, it's a very weird kind of uh, dichotomy of being somebody whose career has put them on some public stage and not wanting to be in some ways on that stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. It's an interesting wrestle that you have to do internally. Yeah. Do you think that some of that bullying and a lot of that treatment and some of those experiences drove you towards kind of living in a fantasy thing and acting out and, and being able to sort of be yourself or be someone else because of a lot of that stuff? Very much so. I owe, I owe so much to who I am today uh, to being able to explore who I wanted to be in those spaces. Who did you want to be in those spaces? Uh, I was figuring it out and I think I wanted to be someone who was more sure of themselves. Mm. I'm still working on that. Um, I wanted to be somebody that could stand up for people that couldn't protect themselves. Um, 
I wanted to be a problem solver and be useful, you know? Uh, and these were all, you know, th these are all things that you didn't always have the opportunity, especially in those younger years to experience and, and really uh, resonate with. And I think, well, I loved, and I, I grew up playing video games and role-playing games. You can get an, an aspect of that uh, through all those, those facets of, of digital media. But it was tabletop role-playing games that really allowed me to kind of build a persona and step into those shoes and try it on for a while and see what parts I liked, what parts I didn't. And then the next time, kind of try something else that was maybe radically different or adjacent to that with a few tweaks mm -hmm. and see if that was closer to who I you know, eventually wanted to be. Not only did those, those experiences kind of save me a lot of uh, mental anguish in those years, but I think it helped open me up. Mm. Um, it helped me become more confident in my speeching. Uh, speeching, okay, face in point. <laughs> well, we're also drinking. We're also drinking. <laughs> talk for a living. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, mm -hmm. um, it helped me. Some things come out fuckery. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens. I know. Um, it helped me kind of really embrace the idea of, of gifting storytelling to other people. Mm. Um, I began to find comfort and stepping into characters that were myself also. I think in some facet, there was trying to find out who I wanted to be. And there's some facet of knowing that while I was uncomfortable in, in being in this body, I was far more comfortable in being in the body, the perceived body of these other characters, mm. whether they be PCs, NPCs. There, there was kind of a therapeutic aspect of that there for a long time. Is there still to this day? Uh, maybe. It's not as big maybe. of a struggle. But it's, it's not as big there. of a struggle, and I don't feel it's, it's... I'm sure in some ways it's still a subtle tool week to week. Um, and I, it's, you know, I appreciate all my these great friends that I get to play with that have been so supportive in, in my silly storytelling. Oh, but, man. Um, yeah. I, I wonder how did things change in your relationship to other people at school once you started playing RPGs and you were able to become more comfortable in your mind was being stretched and you were acting out different things did it change the way that you were you more confident at school or was it still like i'm still sort of in this weird place but when i escape to this other thing i'm able to be this other person or did was there a crossover there i was uh i th i think my, my freshman year of high school discovering rpgs and going into dance class actually both helped tremendously i was the only guy in dance what kind of dance uh, all kinds of it was just, it was just basic it was dance. dance. Okay. It was just dance. Blanket. Um, and it was considered a PE credit. And I hated running. I hated, mm -hmm. hated PE. So it was my like little you know fuck you to the school system. I, I can do what I want. More creative than running. Very much so. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was me and just a bunch of really awesome ladies that you know didn't tease me about that and brought me in and and we did anything from lyrical ballet and jazz dancing to break dancing to we ran the gamut over the next two years. And so that to me was was very. I felt good because it was active and as a person that doesn't like a lot of physical activity, it was a way that I could kind of still be active, but not feel like I have no purpose to it. I guess that's, mm. that's, that's the thing about physical activity that bothered me was I had a hard time pushing myself to run and work out when there was no perceived narrative end or reason for it. Right. It just seemed, it was like empty calories to me. And I've gotten better over the years in dealing with that, but that, that was like a block for me for many years. Well, and it probably felt like an invitation for ridicule. Yeah. Because you're there amongst all these people who are probably, you know, more comfortable in their own skin than you were at the time. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, when you're in a, a locker room of a bunch of boys in high school and you're putting on your, your you know, jazz shoes and dance pants, you get called all sorts of terrible names. Mm -hmm. And uh, at first it, it stung, but then it didn't at all because I was having a good time with good people. 
And the more people I got to meet, especially through theater, the more I realized that these insults didn't mean anything because there were wonderful people that, you know, that endure these things in arrows and wear it as a banner. Right. And uh, see, so yeah, like dance was really important to me. And it was through through RPGs that I got into theater. I had no interest in being an actor. For being surrounded by entertainment, you know, with, with like my, my parents and grandmother in the theater and kind of growing up around actors to a certain extent, I had no interest. And mm. everyone told me, don't be an actor. Mm. You know, everyone who was an actor was like, just don't do this. And uh, Why? Because it was such, a, it's such a harsh such a career, career. Mm. And it just crushes so many people, mm. and it takes a certain mindset to endure that and still, you know, persevere. And so, very wise of them to at a young age be like, "Trust me, don't let this destroy you. Have a trade, have a fallback, yeah. have a thing if you are going to pursue it." The exactly. things that people always tell you guys. And so I went into art. I went into illustration, and and my whole upbringing was was filling sketchbooks with comic book characters and creature designs and make my own little comics in, in the margins of, of tests I do at school. And mm. I made money in, in uh, middle school uh, from drawing kids' pictures, you know, of characters they wanted to see. Uh, and then in eighth grade, drawing nudie pictures for kids who had no access to the, nice. you know, to... <laughs> do you have any of those left? I'll buy oh, some, I, I, I'll pay you to do some nudie pictures. <laughs> oh man, it was so bad because at that age, you know, when you're seven years old, you don't have a good sense of anatomy. Um, yeah, you, so probably it's, it's very, you probably haven't spent a lot of time around a lot of too many naked yeah, people. Yeah, definitely. Salvador Dali did like a Playboy piece. That's mm -hmm. kind of what I did. But, but at the time... You know, the internet hadn't quite emerged yet, right. you know? And so a lot of these kids were just like, can, can, you, draw, can you draw boobies? Mm -hmm, and I'm like, mm -hmm. I, I think so. I think Let me it, just yeah. like copy this picture of Rogue from my <laughs> X-Men comic and just add add what I think a nipple looks like on a lady. Sure, here you go. 20 I'm bucks, really, man. I'm really good at left great. boob. Right boob's a little weird Yeah, it was a little me, hard. We'll, uh, I'm getting there, yeah. But yeah, and, and I had a few lady friends that wanted me to draw, you know, like a naked Wolverine. And I was like, well, this I know a little better. Uh... <laughs> And uh, and it was it, it it helped me fund my early days with Magic the Gathering and helped mm -hmm, me. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> I made some decent money you know, for a kid in, in middle school drawing a side hustle going drawing on a, a nude characters. It's interesting to me that you ended up on stage in theater dealing with the tornado of stuff that you were dealing with internally. It seems to me like the most terrifying place to be. When you feel that way about your body, you feel that way about your voice, even though you had gone through, you know, years of speech therapy at that point. I know why you ended up on the stage, but what was that like? Was the was was doing theater a terrifying experience for you at first? And then you got more comfortable with it because of what was going on internally? It was weirdly more freeing. Hmm. I, I had never thought to pursue it. And it was after school one day, uh, it's my freshman year, and I was sketching in a sketchbook while I was waiting to be picked up from my parents. Uh, I usually had to wait about an hour and a half for my uh, mom to come get me. And Mr. Gilpatrick, who was the uh, the theater teacher at my high school, kind of stopped and said, what are you drawing? And I think I was drawing some sort of monster. I was, you know, heavily in D&D at the time. Wolverine's so dick. <laughs> would, you, would you like? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah. I call it Weapon X. Um, so uh, uh, I showed him the sketch, and we just talked for a while. He just kind of saw this kid sitting there by himself and asked, you know, what's up? And the more we talked, he was like, have you ever thought about auditioning? For, like, we have a theater, theater audition coming up soon. You should you should check it out. And I was like, ah, it's not really my thing. You know, I, I, I don't know. He's like, well, come come on, just give it a shot. Was it give disinterest it or was it fear? A little bit of both. Okay. It was maybe a disinterest because it was something I never considered, and most of my life kind of, you know, beaten in my head that it's something I should never do. And then it was... 
the idea of getting up on stage in front of a lot of kids and uh, kind of putting myself out there in a very uh, vulnerable, vulnerable way. way. But I was like, an, an audition can't hurt. Mm. And uh, it was for The Crucible. Wow. And uh, I read for Reverend Hale. And, uh, and I ended up getting it. And I think it was, I think it was partially a, a, a pity cast after our conversation. He's like, I'll, I'll give this little kid his first chance at theater. Mm. Um, and then throw me in Arthur Miller's Crucible. I mean, I guess he's a, a little, freshman. He's a little sadistic uh, <laughs> on his part, I'm sure. But weirdly, like uh, the more rehearsals went, the more I felt comfortable, once again, stepping into somebody who wasn't myself mm. and, and finding a space there where I could not... For the times I was on stage in this costume, reciting these lines and interacting with other performers on stage, I wasn't looking inward. I wasn't judging myself. I wasn't, mm. you know, focused on my discomfort. And that was very kind of unique and thrilling to me. And did then I met a whole new group of friends through it, and it just kind of expanded from there. So how long did you do theater in high school then? Uh, I, I did it all the way to the end every year. Did a lot of musicals. Um, you're a great singer. You have a great singing voice. Well, thank you. Even though you're not... You know, you said you didn't pick up on the art of playing instruments or, you know, reading music or mastering in that way. You still developed a great the, singing voice. The one instrument that I can do is, yeah. is the one that came with me. Uh, I think my dad for that. Hmm. Because he was a musician, me and my brother grew up with him singing harmonies on different Beatles songs at a young age and stuff. So I was, I was always around music and I guess singing was the one thing I could do, which is why I have such a love for karaoke. Because right. it's, the, it's like that and driving in the car, the two times that I mm -hmm. get to express myself through song and not, you know... I feel like I'm showing off or anything dumb like that. What kind of musicals did you do in high school? Do you remember any of them? Oh, a lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein, mm -hmm. which is terrible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, South Pacific, Carousel. Um, uh, I, I got heavy into musicals, though, through it, like appreciation and interest, like uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Um, Scarlet Pimpernel is still one of my favorite mm -hmm. musicals. Um, but yeah, it's like, so all those years to me, like theater was... Was, was an outlet for me, and through it I met a lot of my close friends, some of which I still talk to today through the drama club. Mm. Um, but uh, but I wasn't, still wasn't something I wanted to do as a career by any means. Uh, my main, main focus was art, and so I spent my, my entire time doing all the art classes, going to studio art, doing the AP exam, getting you know my, my five out of five on the AP exam. Uh, I was going into CalArts for their animation program, wanted to do like, you know, illustration and 2D, possibly 3D animation. And it was right after I graduated and was prepping to begin there that I began to have serious doubts because I had all these people around me that were amazing artists that were going into the school, or other artists that I was interfacing with that just had these incredible portfolios and I just didn't stack up, mm. you know? You didn't feel like you were at that level? No, and I didn't know if I could get there. And mm. the last thing I wanted to do was, was throw myself into a career that I, I wasn't competitive enough to kind of make a living at. Wow. And so I met with a few animators at the time who had worked on old Disney films and through friends of my grandma's and stuff. And um, they all basically told me like, why, why do you do art? Mm. And I'm like, well, because it's a, some form of self-expression. He's like, well, you understand that most of this job is drawing somebody else's character and somebody else's design under somebody else's supervision exactly how they need it 12 plus hours a day. And occasionally on your off time, you get to draw for yourself. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Did it feel like that would suck the passion and the love out of it for you because it was going to become such a daunting? I felt like it would have only because the people I talked to 
seemed to emphasize that. That that's what was gonna happen. Um, and I've since met many animators and stuff that it's not the case. It's mm. definitely work a lot of times, but they still are very proud of what they've done and they get to work on great projects and it's inspiring. But at the time, when I'm at that crux of my life being, do I jump into all of this you know, school debt um, that my parents definitely cannot afford. <laughs> Can't afford, right. Um, you know, but to make this big jump, is this something that I want to do? And so I decided no, and I, I pulled out and uh, got a job that summer uh, doing game testing. And that was <laughs> video game testing. Video game testing uh, for a company called SoundSource Interactive at the time, that then became TDK Media Active. And, uh, and this is right after high school? This is right after high school. Yeah. Uh, or like right part of that summer thereafter when I finally just like pulled the cord. And uh, they were they were focused on edutainment titles, like uh, uh, a lot of a lot of teaching kids how to type projects that were licensed, or like the the Great Valley was it the Land Before Time Great Valley Racing Adventure for the PlayStation, or the uh, Berenstain Bears Extreme Sports for the Game Boy Color. Right, right. Uh, Game Boy Color. Yeah, man. We got the Shrek license, and that was big. So we got like the first Shrek Xbox game. It was it was very trying on my soul. I bet those years. Yeah, those aren't when I think of. The games Matt Mercer likes to play. I don't know, <laughs> Berenstein Bears comes Yeah. To I was like one of the only testers in that too. So that was like half a summer was just me in a dark cubicle with a Game Boy Color uh, playing the scrolling Game Boy Color screen for hours and mm -hmm. then like stopping and going to lunch. And it was like some acid flashback watching patterns <laughs> shift from seeing the scrolling screen for too long. But, but because I was such a big fan of games, I still took a lot of pride in it. So I worked up the chain from there. I became a lead tester for a while, then became QA manager. Uh, and I, I worked on, on the production side for about seven or so years, eventually working on uh, God of War 1 and 2 for a little bit. You Sony were in Santa Infinity Monica. Ward for a while? Yeah, I got headhunted from Sony Santa Monica Studio to Infinity Ward and got to work on Call of Duty 2 and uh, the first Modern Warfare. Oh, it's such a good game. And uh, it was great. It was great. But, uh, but And I met a lot of great friends there uh, and, and learned so much about the, the development process. But there were a couple personalities at the company that I just didn't mix with. And um, through those years, I delved and kind of dipped my toe into bits of voiceover. I was going to say, did, did the game testing thing feel like, okay, I'm putting art aside as a, I'm going to throw myself into this as a career trajectory because of how you ended up feeling about it. Then you're sort of in this, I don't want to call it purgatory, but you're in this in-between place of doing yeah. game testing. Did it feel like a, I'll do this for now until I figure out what's next, until something hooks me and I figure out what it is I really want to put the passion into? That was where it started as. But then as I began to to put, take a lot of pride in my work and, and climb the ranks, then those old thoughts that every kid has in their gamer and they're 10 years old going, I can make a video game. Mm. And so I began to think of this possibility of down the road being like a game designer. And I began to develop my own little half-concocted game design docs in my home computer and had these distant dreams of maybe working on that scale. But, mm. but uh, yeah, it was very much a, a purgatory that began to come a possible career path. Uh, but during that time, I'd done little bits of voiceover Walla projects just through friends of my dad's that he worked with. And uh, Walla, for people, a lot of people don't know, is actually a place where a lot of people end up starting. It's yeah. the back, it's sort of the background stuff that you hear in movies, games, TV shows, right? That's, yeah, that's the... when, when you have all your main characters running through a story and all of a sudden one of them rushes down the street and cell phone guy number three goes, hey, watch where you're going, you know? <laughs> uh -huh. that, that that would be something recorded as part of a Wallace session. Mm -hmm. Or when someone's at a party when you hear all the chatter in the background 
that doesn't really make words. You don't really understand what they're saying, but it makes it feel like a full atmosphere. All that's actors doing the walla for that project. And so that's kind of where I started. And it was just enough of a taste to be like, well, this is fun. This plays into my love of theater. I don't have to be on camera. Uh, and I love anime and video games. And these are kind of the places where I'm starting to, to, to dive into. Did you ever put subliminal messages in there? Like, <laughs> Satan will wash over the earth. Like, it's some, it's some ice cream social. No, thing. no, no. <laughs> I, I, had, I, I had enough of, of the satanic panic kind of wash off of right. my love of D&D &D that I didn't want to rock you the boat at all. You didn't want to, like, put any backwards masking right, right. into yeah. anything. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, I just did that through the years off and on. And it wasn't until I decided to leave game development because I was just not happy with the people I was working with to an extent. Uh, and I got enough gigs there. I was like, you know what? I want to I want to try this. Let me just give it a shot. I'm going to go ahead and quit my job with what little money I've saved up. I'm going to downsize my whole life to this tiny little studio apartment and give this like a couple years. Mm. That way at least I know I can, I can put my all into it, give it a, a proper shot. And if it doesn't work out, I can move forward without regrets and be like, you know what? I tried it. Didn't work out. This will be the next avenue I work, work towards. But at least I tried this. Yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of of not living with regret mm. you know if you if you feel like you want to try something do it but be aware that it might not work out but i believe it's better to try and fail than it is to spend the rest of your life going man what if mm. you know i think, I, I think uh, that that is a little more toxic on the soul it's hard do you have many regrets i do in the sense of like personal relationships in the past mm. it's my friend ian who i mentioned earlier I wish I'd stayed in touch with him. It's that classic hackneyed style of like, we're both thick as thieves and then I meet a girl in high school and then all of a sudden our friendship rifts mm -hmm. and we grew apart. And I still feel kind of bad about that. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are regrets. Every person lives with regret to a certain extent. I think that's why I want to make sure that I live with less. You have a healthy process to ensure that as years go by, you don't accumulate a lot of those regrets. Yeah, yeah. and and failure is, is a wonderful thing. I've I've been very aware of the wonderful lessons you learn by failing. And I think it's better to look back at all the attempts you made at certain things and then totally biffed and laugh about it and learn from those experiences. Do you and, have an example of that? Oh, man. Uh, well, uh, trying to become an artist, as I mentioned before, that was, that was a huge nope. Yeah. So many years invested in that, that didn't work out. But I still have experiences that I appreciate from that. I know that at least I got to a point with my art where I'm comfortable changing trajectory mm. and don't regret not pursuing that path. Right. And uh, a lot of the skills that I learned through those years have carried over into all the facets of my life. To what you're day. doing now. And yeah. Right. So um, that's, that, that's part of the reason why I have such a huge love for the art community around critical roles, because I get to see all these people that are doing far better work than I could have ever hoped for and kind of live vicariously through their vision uh, mm -hmm. and and their their body of work and you know what it goes through to create something like that oh so yeah you have such a greater appreciation for it versus someone like me i i can't draw i you know I'm, if i draw a stick figure it looks offensive you know so it's pretty offensive when you draw. sorry i'm trying i know i've it's asked okay. for lessons and you're too expensive <laughs> <laughs> some people know this but you were big into cosplay for a while too oh yeah what what time period was that that would have been around 2002 2003 so were you still doing game stuff at that point yeah or did you transition I, to voiceover yeah oh no no I, I mean, that was that was heavy into my my early qa testing days um what got you into cosplaying 
Well, I'd always loved Halloween. Mm. Halloween was always an excuse to make a crazy costume, usually a big video game character. I remember like freshman year of high school, I dressed up as Akuma from Street Fighter. Mm -hmm. uh, I dressed up as Magus twice in high school from Chrono Trigger. So I improved on the costume later. I dressed up as Laguna one year from Final Fantasy VIII. So for me, it was just, you know, I already had kind of an instinct of making these uh, pop culture characters as a costume. But it wasn't until I started going to anime conventions back in the late 90s, I was like, oh, people do this outside of the year. So I wore my Laguna costume to, the, technically my first costume would have been like 98. And you um, went to those conventions as a fan. Oh yeah, no. Because you weren't getting hired to- Oh God, no. God, this is years before yeah. that. So yeah, like I I went to my first name at Expo 97 and then 98 I wore my first costume. And that was the, the Laguna that I mm -hmm. wore in the Halloween before, I think. I think that works out right. Um, might have been a year later. We have fact checkers. <clears throat> yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll do it. We'll ADR it and <laughs> make it make you perfect. Say <laughs> I love it. Um, me and my friends used to to look at the cool pictures that would come out online, and there were all these amazing costumes that a lot of these you know, ladies were making, but there weren't a lot of dudes doing like really good quality cosplay at mm. the time in the early 2000s, and we were really frustrated. It was like this, you know, cloud strife cosplayer wearing jeans, and I'd be like, "Come on, dude! Come it's on!" Right? Yeah, and so we'd 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 get frustrated by it, and so me and like my friend Gavin and my friend Kevin at the time, we decided, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna go and make new costumes and go to Anime Expo and show that dudes can also do a decent job. And so you know, we'd all I'd done some work in theater and doing you know props and uh, uh, setting pieces and stuff like that, plus the costumes I'd previously made, and we all just made a couple costumes and went to the convention and met all these friends who are both as weirdly awkward and, and and geeky about this stuff as we were. And so that led into a whole new social circle where I met so many great people, so many great creatives that to this day are still very, very good friends of mine. Um, and so for years, we just began to do, you know, find ways that we could go to this convention across the US and meet up with these friends. And it was, at the time, there wasn't like this huge competitive cosplay scene. Right. It was just a bunch of nerds wearing costumes that we made, getting photo shoots together, and then drinking at room parties all weekend. It was it for was... fun, not recognition. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because there was none at the time. We were still, you know, the bastard child of the internet. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we had, a, we had a great time. And a lot of my money that I made as a QA tester and then, you know, up the echelon was either towards rent, food, um, you know, games, gas, and then the costume. Right. And that's kind of where my spread of, of, of cash went for many years there. And uh, as I, at that time also, I... I think around 2002, I was getting in my most uncomfortable weight. I was around like 235, 240 pounds. And my my heavy self-loathing and dysmorphia was getting extremely crippling. Mm. And I decided if I wanted to go ahead and, and do these characters justice, um, I, need to, I need to start exercising, something that I've been avoiding my whole life. Oh, yeah. And so I joined 24 Hour Fitness and began to change my diet. And it's ironic that it took me... It took my love of Final Fantasy characters to finally get me to lose weight and a real nerdy statement here that I hope the internet gets to enjoy now. <laughs> to be able to um, get that look just but yeah, right. I couldn't push myself past that that line to actually start taking care of myself until I was like, uh, oh, the being able to properly represent, you know, Cloud and Sephiroth. Mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. too important to me to, 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 to not feel comfortable in that space. I had to do it justice. Right? Yeah, so like in six months, I dropped like 70 pounds, which is probably not healthy in hindsight. Um, Depends on how you did it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, that that helped give me a little more confidence as well. And then meeting these people that were such good people, and so wanting to do groups together, and 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 we'd hang out and talk afterward. And this was in the days of 
you know, burgeoning live journal and, mm -hmm. and the internet, you know, AOL Instant Messenger was like the way that people communicated. Right. You hear that, you know, that sound was like in every household. Oh yeah. And, uh, and yeah, that, that, that became my social clutch, my, my, mm. my, my social circle that I held on to for those years. And so I began to do conventions as a cosplay guest. That was my first kind of any sort of, of step into the avenue of being uh, a guest at these events and speaking at panels and stuff. It was purely for for making armor and wow. styling wigs and and sewing techniques and all kinds of weird stuff like that. It's interesting. I hear you talk about when you met the theater kids and having grown up with not only the internal monologue that you did, but the external stuff, getting bullied and teased about either the way you talked or the way you looked or your scalp, whatever it was. And then you find this like-minded people who go like, oh, fuck all that stuff. And then leapfrog there to the cosplay community, another group of sort of, you know, outcasts or, you know, they're not yeah. the popular kids at school. They're not, you know, maybe in some cases, but um, it's interesting how we magnetize towards those other people who go like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Like, oh, you've got you've got this thing going on. Well, I've got this thing going on inside. So, you know, we're like minded in that way. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was it was, it was great to find a space of people that. Uh, the sense of community of people that, that were not judgmental at the time. Cosplay's gotten very different in years it's recently. Different. That it's become an industry for some people, and pageantry is a big thing. It's competitive. Um, but back then, it was we were just happy to be hanging out and being nerds. Celebrating the things that made you happy. Yeah. Like the Final Fantasy. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that went for many years until I decided to, to try this career as a voice actor and left my old job, in which case I had to let my finances become very, very minute. Not a lot of money for armor. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I I put my my cosplay interest to the side and and focused on on trying this weird lifestyle as a professional actor. You've talked for hours and hours on end about your awesome voiceover career. I'm not gonna touch on that too much just because there's so many There's plenty of that on the internet. So many of that, yeah, so much yeah. of that on the internet. Um what I am interested in is the web series stuff that you you got into making web content early, early on. Um, now there's everybody's doing it, we're doing it. Yeah. Um, but how did you get into working on the web series stuff? Was it tied in through some of those people you met through doing cosplay or voiceover? Partially, yeah. Talos and I met through cosplay originally. Right. It was it was barely through voiceover. We were both uh, part of a G four, yeah, which is a G four back when that existed. Mm -hmm, it, was mm -hmm. a, it was an award ceremony. Um, and they had a bunch of cosplayers there, and I was dressed as Kingdom Hearts Sephiroth, and he was dressed as Mad Hatter from Batman, and so we met there for the first time and became close friends as he had been doing voiceover for a bit, and I was dabbling in the same space a little bit. Um, but so I knew him for a while, and then uh, as production stuff started to be, you know, really hit YouTube, and people began to, to find affordable uh, equipment for, for hobbyist filmmakers, I decided uh, a few friends of mine, and we had some ideas for some sketches. We had some ideas for some shorts we wanted to do. And at the time, I had a job, and I was like only one of us that, that had one. So I was like, oh, I'm going to buy the camera, mm. buy like a microphone, a boom mic, and we'll have just the base amount to get this done. I'll teach myself how to do Premiere Pro and uh, how to do After Effects. And so I became also an editor and a post guy. We began to do our own little internet shorts and, and fun things on the side. Um, and then pulled Towson to a few things. Uh, and it got to a point where one of my friends, uh, Zach, came to me with an idea. It's right around the time that Smash Brothers oh, right. Melee had been out for a while and Brawl was going to be released. And uh, we started talking about how Sonic the Hedgehog was going to come in the game. And Kirby 
when he would eat Sonic, because everyone else would like wear their hats, their helmet. Mm-hmm. But when he ate Sonic and pushed him out, he was wearing his scalp. Mm-hmm. And that was predominantly really fucked up. A little strange. And so we started to riff on that and talk about how like Kirby's this kind of cannibalistic character that's wearing other characters' skin and flesh. And then we began to build this weird kind of dystopian dark world of Nintendo. <laughs> and shortly after that, we had the idea for a web series. There we were all. Yeah. And we had the camera. And we just brought our friends in, cast a few people to play the major parts that, you know, required a, a talented actor, whether comedically or otherwise. And uh, that's where I met Matt Key. That's where I met a lot of other good friends of mine that I still know to this day. And we just shot this series for fun, the first three episodes. We, it was all out of pocket. No one got paid. And uh, we were all amateur. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I never took any classes in filmmaking. It was basically just trying to, to copy what I saw as far as angles and lighting and, and fake my way through it. But the first few episodes got some traction, and suddenly we got picked up by The Escapist with a, mm-hmm. with a small budget. Still enough to like fund it, but not enough to actually pay anybody. Right, right. Because um, it was the early days of the web. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were really excited about what we were doing. It was, it was one of the few projects I've ever been on where we're all working so hard. No one's making any money. We're doing 12-plus-hour shoots uh, at night from like dusk to dawn. Uh, and I'm editing for hours on end, but because we're all good friends and because we're all excited about the content we're making in a space where there wasn't really anything like it yet, we were all just passionate and, and happy to put it together. Ooh, and you felt like you were on the cusp of something. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was so much fun, and it nearly killed me to get the series done. I think the whole thing together is like three and a half hours long. We did it over the period of a year for fun on the side whenever mm-hmm. we had free time. And uh, it was hard, but... It was it was a good thing, and 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 a lot of a lot of my good friends came through that. Talison, you could see sporadically throughout the series in the background doing like he was a he was a, a homeless vet at one point near near Solid Snake who was living in a box. Mm. That's what happens. It's a right. series you should of you need to watch. Yep, um, no, I've seen it. But yeah, so like that that began kind of this idea of doing web series stuff, and from that uh, we did a series called. Uh, School of Thrones, kind mm-hmm. of a, a John Hughes high school parody of Game of Thrones. We did three episodes of. I directed that. Um, we did some other shorts and bits. We did like for Fear News, for for the Fear Net, and that was around mm-hmm. for a while. It was fun, but I also realized at the time as a director, it was hard for me to continue this process when there wasn't really any any way to monetarily support myself doing it because the money was so shallow in those years of YouTube. Right. And I, once again, had to focus on this kind of career as a voice actor I was trying to, to facilitate. And I kind of pulled away from it. I got a little burnout on directing web series. But, but there's, I met so many great people through that process. One uh, of them, your now wife. Yeah, actually. That tell one. me about that. So She told me about it, but I want you to tell me about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> so in that web series, there will be Brawl. Uh, a friend of mine that I met through the cosplay scene, her name was Becky. Uh, Becky Young, I cast her as Samus Aran, who was kind of like the the uh, stripper with a heart of gold uh, in this noir-ish world who who was a, a protagonist uh, towards Luigi, who Matt Key played. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we became friends, even, even stronger friends through that. And she wanted to do a sketch series that was kind of gaming geek-centric, and she was putting together a writer's room. And so she brought me and Matt and our friend Paul played Mario in the series. And she brought us together for a meeting. And uh, part of the other side of the writer's room were her friends that she met through improv, one mm. of which was Marisha. And so Marisha came into the room with her boyfriend at the time. I was in a relationship at the time. And uh, it was one of those like immediate crushes that just hit me. And I was like, who is this? Mm. And we were laughing, we were telling jokes. And I just assumed she did not give a shit who I was. <laughs> and plus we were not in a position 
at all. Right, to, to flirt. Flirting. I don't yeah. really know how to flirt. You know, I've been, <laughs> been an indoor weird kid my whole life. I'm, I'm still learning the social graces of, of that realm, even seven years into our mm-hmm, relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we kept in contact. We'd see each other at social events over the next year and a half, two years. Um, and it was always one of those like little heart flutter moments whenever I'd see her, but it was very much a, you know, I'm a respectful guy and I would never, ever encroach on anything like that. Right. Um, and I was, and I had my girlfriend at the time and it wasn't until, uh, I had broken up with my previous girlfriend and had spent some time kind of on my own and we reconnected over a project that they asked me if I knew anybody who could, it was a, a female actor who could do a lot of physical movement. Mm. Uh, I knew Marisha had some martial arts training and, and, and had dan- been Dance, a dancer for a long right. time. So I was like, I, I'll give her a referral there. And so she texted me saying, thank you so much for the referral. I owe you a drink. And I'm like, yeah, sure. We never actually had any one-on-one time. Mm. Let's, let's do that. I'll, I'll take you up on that drink. And so we went to Mexicali, not too far from here. And we spent like four or five hours talking. And it was just this like electric, immediate bond that I wasn't expecting and I was enthralled but it was also one of those scary things where I was like this was a really great evening fuck well you know have a good night Mm -hmm. I wish you well you know one of those like passing in the night type scenarios we're gonna right yeah um but she as I found you know was kind of on the outs with her boyfriend at the time for a long time and about a week later or so she called me and said hey so I just broke up with my boyfriend, do you want to get another drink? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. And so that kind of was our, our first date. And I, and it was, it was magical. I, I never, as a person who, who deals with a lot of, of self-loathing issues and, and, and perceived uh, disconnect with, with what people hope or expect to see as, as an interesting or, or, or pretty person. I'm always surprised when anybody ever shows interest. Even in the mm. time that I was single and and friends were pushing me into this whole dating thing, I was constantly taken aback by anyone's interest and then usually kind of backed away very quickly because other things moved too quickly or I discovered there was there was not a healthy match in personalities. Mm. Um, what was it about Marisha? Uh, I think it's it not past tense. It would it would still be yeah. an is. It would still be an is, obviously, but at the because time, she's the same person. Yeah. But- but what, what was it for you? Because I, I, I remember meeting you guys um, shortly after you started dating and yeah. just going, well, that's a solid, that's a solid setup right there. Um, it, <laughs> it, 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 you guys complement each other in it because you're so different, but you complement each other in a way that helps both of you feel really safe, I feel like. Very much so. Yeah. She's, she's confident in ways that I wish I was. And self-assured in a lot of ways that I wish I was. You know, she's definitely a fighter. Mm. I've said it before. She's the fighter. I'm the diplomat. But like mm-hmm. that, legitimately, that's it. I've, I've always been a very passive and diplomatic person to try and make sure that hey, we're all friends. Let's let's work this out. Let's talk. And that that's great most times. But sometimes that that doesn't work. That isn't what's needed. Uh, sometimes, sometimes you have to walk away. Yeah. Or sometimes you have to step up or to their face to and be like, "What are you going to do mm-hmm. about it?" Mm-hmm. And she was very much that strong person that I couldn't see myself being at the time. And that was very uh, comforting and wonderful. Um, but she was funny and she was uh, uh, very observant and and was a great listener. And she had her own 
uh, convoluted history, and we both swapped our our life stories and found differences and 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 you know moments of, of synchronicity and and I didn't feel any judgment. I didn't feel any any of the things that I found more often than not in this city. Uh, and and she was just so creative. She was just had this brimming creative drive that that at the time she, she was lamenting that she had no outlet for it because mm-hmm. nobody in this town would give a, a, you know, a comparatively fresh off the bus from Kentucky kid the time of day to show what she could do. And in this time I saw that there was so much that she could do and it was inspiring to see her being like, I don't care, I'm gonna keep pushing, I'm gonna make this happen. And I'm gonna meet people, I'm gonna do what it takes, I need to tell these stories, I need to be this person. And uh, it was just so inspiring to me. And she had a good sense of humor. She, we both gave each other shit immediately mm-hmm. and, and could sling it and take it. And uh, yeah, it, it, for all the things that we had in common that were magical, there were perfect differences that helped uh, kind of fill in the gaps. You know, I remember a perfect partnership in that way. I think a big lesson I learned in my last relationship, and I remember us talking about it that first date that we really had, was uh, Shel Silverstein's Missing Piece which is such an incredible book um, that essentially talks about the idea that um, a relationship shouldn't be based in finding someone that fills your void. Mm-hmm. You know, you you know, not believing that you are an incomplete person and you need to find somebody to complete you. That isn't always a healthy dynamic. Mm-hmm. And uh, the story goes through this, 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 you know, shape that feels like it's, it's trying to fit other people who are missing pieces together. And while they may might fit, they can't go anywhere. Or maybe there are some people are missing too many pieces, mm. some people, you know, and then eventually they find somebody who's just round and rolling on their own. Like, you know, well, how, how are you doing that? Right. It's like, well, I, I just pushed myself to keep going. I wasn't waiting. I wasn't going to wait for somebody to film, to film me. I was just going to go ahead and, and keep pushing on my own path. And eventually I, I kept going. And so the piece, forces itself to flip hmm. and then roll and roll until it begins to round the corners. And the last shot is the two of them rolling side by side. Wow. And I realized based on previous relationships, I needed somebody that wasn't this kind of, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, codependent relationship. Right. I needed somebody who both of us could be whole individuals uh, side by side. Right. And we could both have our path that goes together and our paths that go parallel, but separate and be supportive and appreciative of that arrangement and we both agreed so heavily on that both mm-hmm. through hindsight of our previous relationships and who we wanted to be and that was the foundation that you yeah. wanted to build together was on that yeah. and i since i've known you and i remember even hearing about you before we met and just about how hard both of you worked and and not you know uh, we talked in the last episode at length about um the steps that Marisha took to get where she is today. And then we're talking to you about the steps you, nobody handed either of you anything. You've had to work your asses off since you've got both got to this town to get to where you are. And, you know, nobody, you, you, you know, you didn't, you didn't have money. You didn't have uh, close friends in the business, just throwing roles at you. You both fought together uh, and believed in each other and had a partnership that in a way, ultimately landed you where you are today because you you wouldn't give up and you wouldn't it seems like you wouldn't let each other give up and i'm sure you know supporting each other in different times of discouragement or things are going well for me or things are going well for me and there's all the competition and stuff and being both actors but there's a resilience there that i think has really gotten you you two through i agree watching her grow especially you know my my path is 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 my my path 
Um, but where she was when we first met and first began to, to embark on this kind of life together and seeing how she's flourished and the, the, the challenges that have come before her that she's surmounted. And the, you know, she's, she's filled with her own, you know, sense of, of self-loathing mm -hmm. and, and we've had our own things we've, we've helped each other through and are still helping each other through. And that's kind of what, what makes a relationship like this so, so important mm. um, is we've both been very open and very um, willing to allow the other person to be who they are. That's not trying, huge. not trying to fix each other. That's huge. You know, we're just we're we're there to support and help guide where we feel we can. But you know, sometimes sometimes you you know I'm as a guy especially, but but just my nature, I tend to be a fixer. Mm -hmm. Whenever there's a problem, I want to be a problem solver. Like is there a problem, how can I fix it? If you're having an issue, how can I help make it better? If you're feeling bad, how can I make you feel feel you know happy? Mm -hmm. Um, that's not always a good path to take. Sometimes people just need to feel how they're feeling. And you can burn yourself out trying to fix so oh, much yeah. stuff at I've, once. I, a big lesson in my life is that you can't please everybody. And I've spent so much of my life trying to make everybody else around me happy mm -hmm. um, that it's exhausting and it's unhealthy because you can't. Mm. And the people you really can't make happy when you're trying cuts you so deep. You feel like such a failure. Disappointment. Um, Oh yeah, and that builds on all the rest of the insecurities, and it's just a downward spiral that is that is not a great place. I've been there many times, and I don't want to go back. I, I understand. Um, and she's somebody that could come in and say, "You don't have to fight that battle. You don't have to worry about that." Right? Yeah. yeah. Or more like, stop. stop. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm doing the nice version of Marisha. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So blunt and just no, like, and it's great. And but I that's need why that. it works. I need that. Yeah, because yeah. You, if you're coddled, you can talk your way out of something, or you can feel your way out of something. If someone comes to you just blankly and says. You know the way you're feeling. It's because of this. Yeah, just knock it off. It's and it's it's been so helpful to me mm. to understand kind of the the unhealthy behaviors that I've learned over the years that I've been trying to curb and and, and be better with, uh, and it's helped me being able to deal with people that, you know, sometimes just want to be held or just want to be let to feel how they are. Feel and themselves, yeah. you know, we, we built our, our, our phrase that we use, which is an avatar reference, which is that's rough buddy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, an episode of those who watched the show would, would know, but, uh, um, between, uh, you know, it's a soccer line, but the idea is, you know, when a person tells you how shitty things are and how tough they're feeling, sometimes you just got to say, yeah, man, that sucks. It sucks. I feel you. Mm -hmm. And not try and fix it. Not try and offer an alternative, not try and pick them up if they're not open to that idea. Mm. And that's that's been a huge lesson. She I mean many lessons that she's taught me. And uh, I'm so thankful, not to get cheesy here, but like I'm I'm so You're thankful cheesy. that uh, <laughs> that she's been as patient with me as she has been. Mm. I'm, I'm not a, I'm sure in many cases I'm not an easy person to be around. None of us are, you know. I, I am. I mean just meant none of you <laughs> well, guys yeah, are, yeah. but um <laughs> She didn't get the job as creative director at Geek and Sundry or at this company from being the Dungeon Master's girlfriend. She got it because, <laughs> no. as, as you can tell by the quality of stuff that's that's she's touched, that it, she stands on her own two feet in that way. And how cool has it been to see her just blossom and take over and, and for people to recognize, like, this is this is all her like the, so we're proud. we're taking orders we're taking orders from her versus yeah. you know i'm so proud i'm so proud of everything she's accomplished and, and and is going to accomplish like um you know for for anybody who has come from a, a small town as she did with this little as she had to just come out swinging and build you know 
kicking and screaming whatever she could against a perpetual wave of of uh interference and and uh i mean when you're when you're a, a woman working in the internet especially it's it's a harsh space and she has endured a lot and mm. continues to endure a lot even from you know with everything with critical role but she's done it with grace or she's done it by hitting back <laughs> and she's proven herself time and time again to show that that none of that makes any sense mm. none of those none of that negativity has any grounds to hold because you know the work is plain to see it's, what she's it's, done yeah it's the evidence itself of who she is and how hard she works yeah and she's the hardest working person i know i agree i agree i'm real i'm real proud of her me too i can't wait to see what happens next me I too mean, <laughs> with great names like hamburger helper and uh <laughs> Thank you for that, by the way. If you've if you've brought anything Ugh. to this family, Ugh. that'll be your lasting legacy, Ryan well, Foster. If there's any question of whether or not you know we should be wondering if Marisha's good at her job, she did let that slip through, so we should. <laughs> <laughs> you've met Marisha. You're doing voice acting. You're doing web stuff. You've carved out a bit of a space for yourself in this mm -hmm. industry. Um, you've talked before about. The first time you dungeon mastered was in high school, correct? Yeah. Um, I think we have a good sense of that connection for you and what that meant and how important storytelling was for you. At some point in this weird swirl of LA and the people we know and the voice actors you've worked with and all this stuff, you have a couple of different game iterations in LA with people, um, one with Talison and with Marisha and some other friends. And then you get a request from Liam or whoever that they want to do this sort of one-off game for as a sort of birthday present that was birthed on this podcast that Sam and Liam were doing. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So like I, it's, it's funny. I had not really known Liam or Laura or Travis or Sam before this game. I had passed Laura, I think in the street fighter four launch party mm. And said hi because we worked on a couple games together, and she was like hi, and then just walked away. And I was like, oh god, did I make it weird? I don't know. You know, I was I was this new kid. I think that too interaction. <laughs> I know, I know that feeling. Yeah, but like I, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I still, still feel like I don't belong in a lot of ways. And so, like at that time, especially all these interactions, I kept thinking, you know, it's I'm, I'm wearing it on my face. Everyone knows this kid's the, the fraud. Why is he here? And so I, I I never really found a way to connect with a lot of these these people in the industry that I looked up to and, and saw their work. Uh, and Liam O'Brien, I didn't meet until I began working on Resident Evil 6. Mm. And even the first phone call we ever had was me going to the session and him telling you like, all right, so the client didn't really want you for this part, but we have you for this part. And here's what you're going to have to do. You got to do it right and do it this way. And I was like, of course, Mr. O'Brien. Like I was super like scared shitless. <laughs> And uh, what a great setup, too. We set oh, you up for success, you there. know. Uh, no pressure, yeah, no worries. I was just this kind of new kid, and that was one of my first real breakout projects was in Evil Six. And so, getting to work with Liam, who was so frustrated by the Japanese client, and he was just kind of enduring his own, like, uh, he was just very tense. I didn't know if he liked me or not for mm. a while. And uh, when we were talking one day between like on our break, I mentioned that I was playing D&D &D the night before for, for a session I was running. He's like, you play Dungeons and Dragons. And so we got in this conversation where all of a sudden he opened up mm. about like his love of Dragonlance as a kid and how he, you know, he's wanted to play again, but it's been so long. 
And that was like our first real friendship connection at that point. He was just my director, but that moment we became friends. Yeah, so, something you could connect on. And so we kept talking about D&D over and over again at our break time during this game. And, uh, you know, his birthday was coming up and I was like, dude, I'll, like, I'll be happy to run a game for you sometime. You know, like 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 for your birthday. And it's kind of like, I'll run, I'll run you a one shot. How about that? He's like, yeah, nah, I don't know if I can do that. You know, it's just things busy. I got kids, the whole thing. But thank you. I appreciate that. I'm like, all right, fine. Um, and so it wasn't until a while later that he, that he and Sam had this, this they did their podcast. I didn't know anything about. He mm-hmm. didn't tell me this was the reason they were doing it. Right. He just called me up and was like, hey, you know, a while back you said you did, you did me one shot for my birthday. Then let's do it. And so it was a little later in the year. And I was like, all right, great. Uh, you know, in, invite a handful of people and we'll do this. I'll, I got a, a couple of shoe-ins, you know, Marisha. My girlfriend at the time, I mean, be wary. It's our tiny little apartment, um, but uh, but she'll help out with the rules a little bit. Uh, Towson will be there to play as Every- a seasoned player. Yeah, everyone else is up to you. He invited a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was one shot. It was fine. Right. And so uh, it was for me, and one of my favorite experiences in role playing games is taking people who have never played before and guiding them into the experience and kind of giving them the opportunity to really understand why it's so magical. And that one crystalline moment where they, you can see on their face, they, they go, it. oh my God, mm. this is, I can do anything. I can try anything. This is incredible. That to me is like, I will, that, that is my sustenance. Mm. And so. That's an opiate right Yeah, there. watching each one of them who are new to this game have that moment. And having Towson swoop in at one point and do something and they'll go, I didn't know you could do that. And just watching their minds blown repeatedly. I was like, this is, this is joy to me. Like pure undistilled joy. And so it was over and it was done. Then Liam sends out an email like, hey guys, you want to, uh, you know, that was fun. You want to play again? And I didn't want to presume, so I didn't answer. I was waiting to see if people, I didn't know if they had a good time. I hope they did. Yeah. Nobody answered for a while. And I was like, ah, shit. Well, I have my other game I've been playing, you know, or our, our fourth edition, you know, out of spite, make it work campaign. And Were you uh, hoping it would continue? Were you hoping everyone would write back? And it was, it was my first time actually interacting with a lot of these people, so, like yeah. Laura and Travis. I was hoping it'd be an opportunity to, to play with them. Get and to know them better. Fun. Yeah, and uh, so I was like, I hoped it went through, and then they finally responded, and then like, yeah, let's play again. I'm like, okay, okay, this is now second campaign I'm running. Okay, <laughs> um, and so we did another session. Then Ashley came in. I'd never met Ashley before either, mm-hmm. and uh, I was a fan of her work on Last of Us. And I was like, oh yeah, sure, okay, I'll make a character. Don't make a fool of yourself, Matt. You know, <laughs> right? Um, and and it just kind of went from there, and we just kept playing. We kept scheduling the next session, kept scheduling the next session, and I kept kind of expanding the world. And it, it was exciting to consider that these people that were that I looked up to, that were so fresh to this experience, wanted to keep playing. These adults, these professional adults that mm-hmm. had careers and had children and families, you know, like Sam especially. I thought Sam wanted out after the first game. I was like, yeah. why is he coming back? You know, mm-hmm. he's, such, he's such an enigma. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you didn't know him at the time, and I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get a beat on him. He's such a hard person to really he is, right. lock down. And so I was surprised every time he kept coming back. And over time, I, I just fell in love with each of them. Like maybe it, they went from being these these strangers that I hoped to provide a good time for to becoming my family. Like we became so close. And I'm, I'm so thankful for all the time that we got to build up in this and have our Mimosa Sundays playing mm-hmm. in Lord Travis's house or rushing everyone over to our tiny apartment again to, to play and just just watching all the pretenses of, of industry and business fall away. And in this space, we were just a bunch of doofy people making things up, rolling dice and, and just enjoying a good, you know, six, eight hour weekend day together mm. before going back to the rest of our responsibilities. 
and uh, it was it was wonderful. And you know, I have had it with like the previous game, which actually, which unfortunately went away because people moved, and some of our players ended up going across country. My co DM at the time, Zach Hanks, who's another talented voice actor, he ended up moving away, and so that campaign went away. So this became my 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 baby, the one. We've talked about before with the Satanic Panic, and I was not allowed. I remember picking up a Dungeons & Dragons book at uh, Walden Books. Do you remember those? Mm-hmm. Um, I was with my dad and someone from our church, and they were like, oh, no, 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 don't let him touch that. And I remember that very specifically. I never understood Dungeons & Dragons. Ashley tells me she's going to go do this song because we were already together by the time the home game started. And I never got what D&D was until the night she came home at, I don't know, three in the morning, the night that Pike died yeah. in the home game. She was so affected by this thing. And as she explained to me what how it went down, I didn't know fuck all about the right. rules or how it works. <laughs> and she would come home, like I always describe it, so it's like someone explaining their dream to you. Mm-hmm. You're like, cool, so you were riding an elephant with your ex-landlord. That's awesome. <laughs> right. That's how it felt, that's a, right? That's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the profound effect that it had on her and the way that she described you playing out that situation was really for me that I, the moment that I got from an outsider's perspective, what D and D could become. Mm -hmm. And there's been a moment with every single person in that game that was like that for them, where even Liam who played as a kid or Taliesin or whoever, where they went, this is something special. This is something, this is something different. And this is long before, the idea of streaming the game yeah. even well, came well, about. That happens in most home campaigns right. regardless. Like once you forge those friendships and once people begin to grow invested in that story, everyone has that moment mm. where they go, wow, this is not just something I enjoy, but this moment is having a profound effect on me. On me, right. And I'm going to carry this moment with me probably for the rest of my life. As a storyteller, is what what could be a more fulfilling result for you than that moment of connection not just to the game but to the story you're telling right it's it's got to be fulfilling it really is and that's why i love being the gm you Mm. know the dm for me it's 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 a gift like it's 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 in my small way that i can say thank you for putting your time into this thank you for putting your your interest in in whatever i'm capable of doing and give you know being respectful of, of of this thing that we're doing together um let me try and provide something that's long lasting and important to you. Mm. And that to me is a very, a very deeply, like soulfully fulfilling experience. And I don't get that in many other mediums. Voiceover I do to an extent. I, I enjoy games and I enjoy people who get to play through these stories and these narratives and can, you know, tell you like, thank you for this character. Thank mm-hmm. you for this, for this bit. I, I really identify with this individual that you brought to life. Like that's really great to me. And I really, really, uh, appreciate the idea that I've, I've in some small way made someone's day a little better. Um, but in role-playing games, that is such a visceral, primal uh, experience of being able to gift to somebody this story and letting them take it and run with it and and see where it goes. It originates from you. You don't you don't grab a script and then do your interpretation of it, which can still obviously, as you're saying, impact people and create moments and stuff like that but this really originates from you so the connection when someone when someone connects with it it's so much it's on a deeper level yeah because it well while it may originate with me they're the ones that ultimately take that pick it up and, and run with it it's it's this wonderful kind of creative baton pass and uh it's one thing as an artist to create art and set it down and go that is art i made but where the real magic happens where people perceive the art and then pull from that their interpretation 
pull from it how it affects them, how how it emotionally um, draws them to the piece. Hmm. That little that that little interaction between the creation and and the the the, the perceiver of that art. Uh, that is the real magic. Mm. And in, in role-playing games, it's that moment of me going, this is a thing that I've built for you guys. Take it and and do what you will. Right. That is, is it's it's wonderful. Mm. And I, I, I'm so thankful that I've had the opportunity to, to play with so many great people through the years and now with this incredible group and then see so many other people now. Uh, discovering the game through us and other streams and and other role-playing games out there and telling their own stories and then hearing about how that's changed their lives and how it's brought them the closest friends they ever thought they'd have mm. and inspired them to pursue uh, passions that previously they didn't have any drive to go after. It's it's this wonderful little weird catalyst that um, I always knew it could be on a subconscious level, and it has been to me. It was that for you. I was going to say, as a as a as a teenager, it was yeah. that for you. So I'm 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 so ecstatic to see it become that for so many other people. You guys were approached by our beloved Felicia and talked about the idea of then yeah. streaming the game. <laughs> um, you've talked about this before. We've talked about this before. Um, what I'm interested in is. What were you what were you the most afraid of at the idea of streaming the game? Putting cameras on it and everything. What what were you most afraid of? I was or most trepidatious. I was most afraid of two things. The the biggest thing I was afraid of was it changing our game. Hmm. Um because what we had in this weird little uh box of perfectly contained private uh creative friendship was so important to all of us if that was going to be soured by this transition it was not about to let that happen you know <laughs> you could say it wasn't about the money there was no money there was no money you know it was literally just throw it online see what happens see if it sticks in the wall and we're like ah, this mm. seems like a, an opportunity to fuck up something that's really important to us for no for no reason you know plus a lot of people don't realize that the idea at the time of playing Every of having to lock off every single Thursday night every week for a lot of people with families and different things that was that was not really okay. That was no. kind of I don't know if I could commit to that. It was a long conversation to see if we even wanted to do this for you know Liam and Sam who had families and you know of course I love the prospect of playing it more often. Of course, because to me it meant to spend more time with my friends. Mm-hmm. When we're all so busy that we didn't get to see each other really outside of these games for me at least. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of conversations about it. Do do we want to do this? And if we can, how sustainable is it? I know both Sam and Liam had to very graciously request from their significant others uh, some understanding on letting to, letting them see where this goes, mm-hmm. um, because it is it's taking away a weekly Thursday night from the family with and, no promise of success. Yeah, I can't or any promise return you at all that, or any return. I can't promise you that. I'm going to go do this every Thursday night and we're going to get something out of it. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's like, you know, that that poker game I go to with all my mm-hmm. guy friends, you know, that that classic, you know, thing you hear about. Now we're doing it weekly. Mm-hmm. Is that cool? You know, that was that was essentially what it sounded like to, to people who weren't in that game. Uh, and so I'm, I'm so thankful, uh, both Amy and, and, and Aunt QN, for being appreciative and, and understanding <laughs> understanding and of this scenario. Um, but I was also scared of I didn't want to be another I don't want to be another torch on the the bonfire of misunderstanding about Dungeons and Dragons and role playing games. Something what do you was, mean? Something that was so important to me 
that on a larger kind of social scale had been lambasted mm-hmm. and had been ridiculed and misunderstood and on a, on a higher cultural level. Marginalized. Mar- marginalized and, and thought of as something that was, you know, super nerdy, nobody should do, poke fingers, you know, and laugh at people that play this game. Uh, and and I did, and that, that's been something that we've all been fighting as role-playing game nerds our entire life. I, the last thing I wanted to be was another, another you know, piece of of, of dry wood to the bonfire. Mm. I didn't I didn't want to, to to come out of the gate and then be another example. People go, oh, you just see this shit, man. This is why we don't play D anD D, right? And because I don't know, what people are going to think about that. I I didn't have a, a platform. The only people I knew who had any opinion on my games were the people I played with through the years. And I didn't know how it would stack up to anybody else there. I watched, you know, right around that time, Acquisitions Inc. was doing their live shows with these huge audiences and like all these these actors and people that were well-known. And I was like, that is, that is great. Mm. We can't do that, <laughs> you know, by any means. And I'm, and so it was, this, it was waiting for the internet to basically burn us down. And so that was my other big fear. And we talked about it continuously. And I mulled over it perpetually. And we had all these meetings and they would want, you know, the production team would want to try and find ways to to make it more YouTube or more internet friendly. And every single time, it would just erode the core of what made this such a special thing to me. And so we just said no, mm. no, no. And there was there were a number of times where we were like, okay, this isn't happening. We'll just keep playing our game as it is. Mm. And it wasn't until Twitch as a format allowed us as close as we could to just throw some cameras up and then keep playing our game as unhindered as we could, you know, uh, in that space. What was the moment for you um, post once it went online and started streaming um, that you went, we have something really special here? Because you had something really special between all of you. Mm-hmm. But was there a moment for you where you went, whoa, this is having this is having an impact? I'm not talking about viewers. I'm not talking about subscription numbers or any of that stuff that is fleeting and that doesn't make sense. Uh, it's not the reason why anybody's here is doing what they're doing but what was that moment for you where you went dang this is this is something uh, there was a moment a few weeks in i think where we we got an email that was sent to the geek and sundry office that was forwarded to me from their their uh the person who was handling their email mm-hmm. that was uh, somebody saying thank you for the show i was thinking of taking my life I've been thinking about it for a long time and had planned out this whole process in which I was going to end it. And then I stumbled upon your show and I decided, you know what? I want to see what happens next week. And so I waited a week before I do it again. And I set up the next week to do it. And then I watched the episode and finished. Then I went, I want to see what happens. I'm going to wait till the next week. And eventually they stopped setting up. And this is like maybe two months into our stream. And that, that message just was a... A, a, a soulful gut punch. I can imagine. Um, to think that through our, our slee, online bullshit had somehow helped somebody from the brink was, it was a lot. Mm. And that was the first of many. And it's still a lot. Mm, it's still and a lot. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And it's, it's, it's a responsibility. But it's one that I'm, I'm willing to hold and with care i try we're trying all mm. of us are it's you never know the impact your passions will have on people and 
getting to 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 even see a glimpse at how this strange lightning in a bottle phenomenon has affected people positively is incredible. How much of yourself and the struggles you had and sometimes still still have when you see that in critters and in fans of the show and you see them identify with the show and talk about it as a way to help them process or, or knowing how open you guys are with stuff um that's got to be rewarding knowing there's there's kids that were and are like you were out there that this show has been that thing for them that playing RPGs and that that doing theater and things like that was able to do for you. It's that's a reward. It's right? it is. It it very much is. Um you know, I <laughs> as things in my life and career go well, I struggle with feeling like I don't deserve it. Mm. You know, there's a very heavy kind of element of imposter syndrome in a lot of the things that I do. When something goes goes in a very good direction i'm i'm in the back of my head thinking i don't deserve this mm. somebody else should be you know enjoying this moment or the success from this um so a lot of what i'm learning and trying to teach myself is is to be open to that type of of, of feedback um but it's it's incredible to think that it's it's had an effect out there and i remember what it was like being like that and there are many, many, many people out there that have much harder lives and upbringings and and personal uh, conflicts and challenges than anything I ever faced. And if we can somehow be, a, you know, a beacon to that, even in some small way, that's that, that that's incredible to mm, me. Right. I've I've watched friends of mine uh, grow up and struggle with uh, identity and struggle with sexuality and struggle with uh, religion and political and personal interests and, and where they fit in the world and in a time where it was not an open welcoming space to explore those things where there where the support was minimal and you had to find it hidden in the shadows of of the fringes of whatever mm -hmm. society in high school and beyond that you could find um we're in a we're still not out of the woods by any means, but we're, we are in a different place better now, place, yeah. a much better place in some ways where that is uh, a much, much more open conversation, a much more welcoming conversation. And um, it excites me to see that we've moved so far as to where when I was young and saw so many people struggle and fight through those same difficulties. It's really incredible to think that our little game has made some impact. Um, but I, I also struggle with, with the idea of not wanting to mess that up. And to preserve it. And yeah, I'm, I'm super protective of it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm, I'm a flawed person and I make mistakes and I, you know, am of, uh, I am a product of my environment and my age and my experiences. And I'm myself, I'm also learning and hoping to be better. And I just hope and people can be forgiving when I do stumble. And I, uh, I'm excited at the prospect of what this community has become. Hmm. If I had had this 
community when I was younger. I can't tell you how much happier my childhood would have been. Um, and I'm, I'm just somehow so excited and so proud of this community. And it's the community. Like it is our game is our game and we're friends and we play this and, you know, we've, we've fostered aspects of it and try and preserve aspects of it. And I'm glad that this game and this, this, this channel and everyone who's worked so hard here to put this together has been a beacon for many people and has been kind of a, a, a core, uh, element of it, but it's the community around it. It's all the critters and all the people that have come together to support each other, to be there for each other, to share in their mutual passions, to show excitement and support for all their successes, mm -hmm. and then be there to guide them and help them up in their failures. The community of hundreds and thousands and God, even consider millions of people that have expanded beyond this little game is incredible and i can't take credit for that that's you guys that's that's all of you and uh i just want to do right hmm. by what they're all creating when um you implement things into the game representation um identity stuff, sexuality stuff, you, you, in, in my opinion, you find a way to weave that stuff into the game in a way that it fits the narrative. It doesn't take away from anything. It, it adds uh, more diversity to the NPCs, to the storyline, whatever it is. You know, I see people, very few, but I see people complain about that online and keep the politics out of the game, keep whatever out of the game, blah, blah, blah. Um, number one, it's your game. You can do whatever you want. But number two, <laughs> I see you sowing those seeds in there as a way of telling people you're not alone. And I see people, oh Jesus Christ. And I see people respond to that. And I know you're not doing it to get some agenda across. You're doing it because you're trying to reach out to that kid that was like you in high school. And that's gotta be one of the big things that you'll probably take away from this. When it's all said and done, it's all over you help someone not feel as alone as they were. I hope so. And I'll fuck it up. And yeah, I'll, you do a lot. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I can only, I can only speak from my own experiences and from, you know, the people I've talked to. And I, and I, I, I reach out to a lot of people to get different perspectives and to try and tell the stories that I don't, haven't personally lived or are uncomfortable sharing necessarily. You know, I want to, to to bring the semblance of that to to the world that I'm creating because in some ways the world I'm creating is the world that I would want to be in right world that I would want to live in and represents the world that I grew up in you know I was lucky enough to be surrounded with parents and people that you know my immediate family <laughs> but just the family in the south I have <laughs> yeah. I have a number of of, of conflicts with in I got some a few ways of those. but um but you know I I mean God I remember. I remember her, when I was very, very young, my friend Keith uh, and me, we, there was this hidden book on top of a bookshelf that we were like, that looks secret. That looks something important that we shouldn't see. So we grabbed it and ran off to his house and opened it up and it was a book of sex. Oh. And we were like, oh Written man. by Taliesin? Yeah, no, practically. <laughs> and uh, 
we're like, oh, crazy, so we're going through the book. And it's just like, oh, there's just a lot of guys in here. And we're going through the book and we're reading it like, oh, there's, wow, this is just a lot of naked guys in here. And we realized it was the book of sex uh, for gay men. Oh, okay, yeah. And, uh, and we're like, oh, okay. So we just keep reading through. His mom comes in and is like, what are you doing? And gets sees it and gets super infuriated and marches this back to my parents' house and goes like, did you see what, you know, your son and my son were looking at? My parents just started laughing. Your parents are hippies. I mean, yeah. it was like, cool. like it was, it was a present from my Uncle Ted for his for his his wedding. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mark. And uh and that was my first kind of introduction to um to the the you know beyond the classic cultural binary standards that the American mm -hmm. uh life has imposed upon us in from since the puritanical days. Right. And um from there I've just learned so much more about how wonderfully diverse and and beautiful and and universally uh incredible people can be. And uh, I feel very privileged that I've been in that space from that moment on my entire life. And I want to reflect that as best I can mm. in the world. But I'm also, in some cases, compared to a lot of these people out there, I'm an old man who is, who is still <laughs> shaking off, you know, the the, the dregs of, of my mm -hmm. uh, generation. And uh, and I'm excited to see so many of these, these younger folks that are spearheading what will be a much better and much more uh, healthy cultural future for us worldwide. Accepting. Um, and it doesn't mean that struggles aren't there. There's the fights are, you know, are, and will always be there to a certain extent. And they're certainly getting fierce in some ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and even from a, from a political standpoint, like I mentioned earlier, like there are people I disagree with definitely. And there are some things that I'm very passionately against in the political uh, sphere. And there, but I've been that with every single, you know, person in power. Um, but I don't judge people who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum. I want to have a conversation about it. I want them to explain to me the things that they feel passionate about and why uh, to help me better understand their standpoint. And I just want them to be able to listen to mine as well. I think there is danger of extremes on both sides. And uh, I, I keep as well read and informed as I can. Um, but, you know, I want this to be a safe space for people to, to be who they are and to be respectful of listening to the diversity of people around them and not judge based on that. Um, that's a fight that I can't, you know, spearhead because that's, that's our cultural divide on a, on a global scale. But if, if we can help facilitate some of that and give someone a little bit of pause um, to, to look inward in this, this very harsh time, then uh, I'm, I'm happy to have, have helped. You're doing something, way. right? You I feel hope like you're so. Doing something. I'm just I'm one person who plays D and D on the internet. Mm -hmm. There's only so much impact I can have, and mm -hmm. my perspective isn't necessarily the right one either. It's just my perspective. Yeah, I understand. Um, but here we are. Here we are. <laughs>
and so we'll just sit there and talk about it and she'll she'll exclaim moments that she remembers and we'll go on twitter and look at, at you know fan art and fan reactions and stuff like that and and eventually we'll just kind of curl up in bed and go to sleep that's that that's the usual that's process the for us yeah occasionally stopping by taco bell on the way home right if we haven't had a little time therapy, for dinner. A little taco bell therapy. yeah you know <laughs> on the nights where maybe things don't go the way you wanted them to or you feel like one of the players is didn't enjoy it or had a bad experience what's going how 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 different are those nights for you what's going through your mind do you feel like you've let them down do you feel like i feel it, i feel like it, if those if those moments happen and they have happened in the past um it's it's about talking about it i'll ask and be like hey hey what's what's on your mind you know what has you worried about this or what what bothered you about this scenario you're my friend first Ultimately, exactly. yeah. Before a player, you're my friend. I care about your experience. Exactly. And so I would I would ask them directly. You know what what bothers you about this circumstance, this interaction, this resolution, and if it's something that they only have some of the information of, and there's a purpose to these things, and it got construed a certain way, then I might be reassuring, be like, well, if you trust in me, know that the direction this is going will end up being ultimately something you really appreciate if it's something that they're really like i didn't like that at all I'll be like i'm really sorry i didn't mm. understand that i now know that boundary or that that scenario that you're not happy with and i will consider that and how i adjust the narrative going forward because ultimately i'm still wanting this to be fun for my friends mm. um the more you get to learn your players the more you get to learn the table that you're playing at the less you have to to make those adjustments. But in the early days, especially if it's a new game with new players, that's that, that's part of the process is feeling each other out and finding out you know, what works and what really uh, excites and inspires the players at the table. So it's just checking in, you know, even just recently with Travis, you know, checking in with him afterward. And it's been so Travis heavy lately. And, I know. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it, with, with Grog had such a minimal backstory <laughs> necessarily and a, a blip of of narrative elements in the last campaign. He wrote this rich backstory this time and the direction and the paths they chose led right to it. I'm like, all right, man, here's center this. stage for this arc. We're in this now. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think he was used to that. And so that combined with being, you know, playing a character now that requires a little more cleverness and ingenuity uh, for their skill set. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, it, uh, it's, it's brought its own challenges for him too. And it's easy for a player to get frustrated when they feel like they're not playing optimally or they're making mistakes, but that's what people do. I'm sure it's the same for you on the other side oh, yeah. of the screen. I make mistakes all the time. Yeah. Uh, but part of being a dungeon master is to not show that. It's mm -hmm. obfuscating mm -hmm. the mistakes you make, uh, unless they're really big, in which case you you own up to it and try and course correct. But yeah, you know, engaging with him is a good example of me checking in with the players and if I feel something's off, being, you know, what's going on, why, explain this to me. Right. Try and assure them that maybe they misunderstood the scenario, or if it just was not something that they're comfortable with, then assuring them that you will find a way to, you know, to correct it in the future. Right. I want to go back and touch on something that you mentioned earlier, because it's something mm -hmm. you've talked about before, and it's something I know a lot of people struggle with, and that's imposter syndrome. Um, one of my favorite writers, someone that you admire as well, David Milch, mm -hmm. has said that... Um, something that he has struggled with throughout his career and that the way that he deals with it is he channels that imposterhood into storytelling as a way of him to go, you know, this may be the day they find out that I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. 
So instead, I'm just going to write good stories. I'm just going to tell good stories because I know that that's something that I can be confident in and stand behind. How do you combat that sense of imposter syndrome? Oh, man, I am still working on it. Right. It's a process. Um, it's a process. Uh, I've, I've lived life with its challenges, but there are so many people out there that, in my, from my perspective, have endured far harsher mm. realities have far more skill and talent than I have and deserve what I have accomplished far more than I do. Um, that's just my perspective. And it's it's hard to consolidate the idea of like, why should I be here when so many good people suffer? Mm. Um, and is that fair? Um, and that's not my choice to make. Uh, and it's it's not easy. But, you know, here I am amongst my peers, all, you know, very talented people, all good people. And I'm just perpetually having to work towards getting past the the internal idea that are they all lying to me? Uh, you know, do they do all these these game companies that that hire me as an actor? Are they waiting for me to to fuck up so they can? Mm -hmm. Replace you, yeah, replace or, me, or 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 show me how how I've not belonged this entire time. Um, I you know see comments on the internet about the work that I do and the show, and that just you know in a weird fucked up pushing a bruise kind of way. Sometimes I'll seek out to reinforce that voice in the back of my head that says, "See, you you aren't worth anything. See, you 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 aren't you know." you aren't creating or producing anything of value and this person sees it. Um, thankfully, I've learned through the years to minimize that and, and acknowledge that that is just, for the most part, part of that psychological problem that I, I'm, I'm, I work through, but, um, but it's there. And the comments that uh, often, you know, the comments you see that end up hurting aren't the ones that you don't believe about yourself. It's the ones that you are already insecure about and then someone points that thing out that yeah. hurts so much worse than if someone said like you know matt's hair isn't very glorious you could see one of those comments and there's fifty thousand that say it is but the second that someone says i don't like this thing or he messed this up or whatever and if you're already feeling insecure about that it, it hits home yeah. even harder and it, and it resonates louder than a hundred positive comments and it sucks and it, it's not fair to the people that are so gracious Loving and, and, right, yeah, and right. putting all this forward, but it's, but you know, uh, issues with mental health aren't fair. It's not a, it's not an, an even, uh, it's a lottery. Thing. Yeah, it really is. And, and that, that doesn't mean I don't appreciate the positivity and the comments that I get that, that helps me get through the harder of days by, a, you know, definitely. Um, but by nature of, of me not feeling like I deserve the things that I've accomplished, that I don't belong amongst all of these great people, that I don't believe that I'm deserving of the attention and the platform that I've been put upon, um, you know, that that is just my my journey to figure out and reconcile and, and acknowledge that that is, you know, very much an, 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 an incorrect and uh, unfortunate voice that lives within me. And I just have to learn to tune it out and prove it wrong. And uh, that may be a journey I go on my whole life, but, but I'm, I'm here for it. Mm. I'm, I'm willing to saddle up and uh, 
seeing the good that this community and that all these people around me, all these very talented people, even in this you know room, uh, making all these productions of passion possible, that's uh, that helps me think that all those voices of dissent are inconsequential. Mm. But it's not easy. I understand. You know, being, being being on a stage and having people that I once was, you know, in line in costume asking questions, like I look at that and I see where I came from and see that I, I'm still that person and I never changed. And they ask me for guidance and for inspiration and 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 I I you know help them however I can with the experience and the knowledge I have, but in the back of my head, I'm like, I have do I have a right to give you mm. any information when I'm still you when I'm you know in many ways still figuring my shit out. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to, to, to have a voice with every accomplishment you make creep in and, and whisper perpetually in your ear that everyone's going to find out that you have no idea what you're doing and that you faked your way here. And as soon as they do, the security's going to show up and haul you away and they'll never talk about you again. And you have to be okay with that. Mm. That happened my first session on on the Thundercats reboot back in two thousand one or two thousand one, two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven, yeah. Uh, I've had a, I've had one. I understand. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> um, it was my first major uh, Western animation project I'd ever booked. And growing up with Thundercats at a very young age, I was super excited to be a part of it. And I walk into that studio, my first time in the lot of Warner Brothers, and it's Will Friedle, who became such a close friend at the time. I was like, I grew up watching you in Boy Meets World. Mm -hmm. It was uh, Kevin Michael Richardson, who had been a voice of so many characters Everything. I loved and adored. Uh, it was uh, D. Bradley Baker, and it, and it was all these people that I admired. And then directing it behind the, the glass was Andre Romano, who was the director the of my entire Legend, life. yes. And I met her at your wedding, and I'm sorry, but that was the highlight of your wedding. No, to be fair, <laughs> there's no blame whatsoever okay, on that. Okay, okay, okay. Um, I'm happy. But yeah, but 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 I I remember being so blown away that that this was happening, and in the moment I became self-aware that I was in the middle of all this, I immediately became extremely scared hmm. that I don't belong here, and they're going to figure that out real soon, and. I'm waiting for security to come in and be like, uh, we're so sorry. He's we need to escort mm -hmm. him off the premises. We need a professional to come in. And uh, and my nerves came through on that. I talked with with Dan Norton, who was the, the art director on the project afterward, but about four episodes into that that project, they were considering recasting me because my performance was a little shaky. Mm. Because I was so you were rattled by that. Yeah, fear. I was so caught in myself. And and so caught with 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 the the nerves and the worry that I don't know what I'm doing. How did I stumble into this? I'm going to let everyone down. That that affected my performance. But I remember it was uh, uh, Andrea took me aside and had a conversation and we said like you know hey stay after this session. We're going to go over some of the lines in the previous sessions together and I want you to not have anybody else in the room mm. and calm down. And she was so sweet and so wonderful and guided me through that. And it was a combination of her being so positive and Will Will Friedel meeting him at lunch. And he was so supportive. And to have somebody that that had grown up with such a career and that was doing such incredible work to to kind of take me under his arm and be like, hey man, you belong here with the rest of us. That it helped me kind of pull out of that spiral. And uh and we managed to to to, to pick up from there and 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 make it all work you know, out. Work out for what they were looking for. Um 
but that, that was a very strong point in my life where I realized that voice almost sabotaged a very important part of my life, my career. And What's, so I've had to keep that at bay at times. Right. I mean, you have to, or you will seize up and not be able to not be able to do it because that's what fear does and anxiety. Yeah. What's the truth you tell yourself in those moments of doubt so you keep going? Um, or do you rely on people outside to give you that encouragement to try and keep going? For me, it's it's more relying on other people. Because when the when the crux of imposter syndrome is a sense of not feeling worthy of where you are and what you've done. It takes being able to look around at the people that support you, the, 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 the structure of friends and family that are around you and, and help you tell you otherwise to remind you that it is just a voice that isn't the truth. Uh, that doesn't make you go away by any means. But to me, that's that that's been kind of a solace. I've been able to take uh, in looking towards, you know, Marisha, looking towards my friends, looking towards my family, um, looking towards my community. And that's pulled me out of those moments of self-doubt and unintentional sabotage. Because that happens. It's real. It's yeah. real. You can talk your way into and out of and think your way into and out of a lot of stuff. Yeah. If you're not careful. Oh man, and uh, and that that's especially in a, in a creative space. It's one thing to have a body of work that is tangible by numbers and and uh, you know a a an actual physical representation of the amount of effort you put into a career. When it comes to creative pursuits, everything is so subjective, and everything kind of lives in this amorphous space that it's harder to look at it and and convince yourself. That you've done it, mm. that you've you've achieved something, that you've you've done good work, because once again, you can look through a thousand positive comments and then find one negative one, and then just obsess and focus on that about. one, and it's not healthy. But you can't help it; it's just part of the 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 horrible mental wrestling that that type of of uh, insecurity breeds. And people will tell you, don't look at the comments, don't look at the comments, don't look at the chat, don't look at the chat. But you know. Here we are. So right. I've, I've taken steps to help avoid it. You know, we've gotten hate mail. I've, I've gotten mail in the past from people that say terrible, terrible things to me. So I've taken steps to put filters in my mm -hmm. mail to make sure that anything that includes certain keywords or emails or things will just go straight to my trash sure. and stuff like yeah. that. And that's helped a lot. But uh, but yeah, you know, I'm still a, a, a quivering, insecure creative here in a, in a very unsure space and uh, just hoping to do right. Oftentimes those kind of personalities and those kind of mental processes end up creating some of our best storytellers because you pour yourself into that thing. It's like that Milch quote. It's, I I do this so I don't focus on that. Yeah. Because it gets to be a busy day if you yeah. start just thinking about all that stuff and letting it pour over in your mind constantly and it starts to affect the work because you're shaping your story or you're shaping the way you tell your story based on that little thing it's true I, I would say i'm i'm as much as i may complain every now and then about being so busy these days i'm thankful that it allows me the opportunity to be focused on the things i'm creating and not focused on the voices inside that are you know diminishing it mm. what's a question that you keep finding yourself asking yourself how how did this happen? How did all this happen? Hmm. How did 
how did I stumble through a, a, a weird childhood and a, a series of strange careers into a what is a very competitive and um, very difficult to succeed in career to to make enough of a living to to pay my bills and pay my taxes mm -hmm. and uh, to eventually be making a Dungeons and Dragons show. How it's I don't bizarre. It, it is bizarre, <laughs> and, and and as much as I try and look over it and understand how a lot of it's lighting in a bot, a lot of it's perfect timing you know, perfect uh, combination of, of, of content and a cultural need of that type of, of storytelling. Um, mm. But even still, why me? There are so many great people out there that are are doing this. There are so many wonderful people I've met in this industry who are doing their own streams and are doing their own games and are doing their own books and their own stories and their own uh, uh, forms of expression uh, for other people in a community to, to consume and be a part of. And I am just blown away that somehow I stumbled into this light. I'm very thankful. And because of that awareness, I am going to do everything I can to, to make people proud. Yeah. To, 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 to make it the best I can while I have this moment and I'm fully aware and fully expecting that tomorrow it's all going to go mm -hmm, away. Mm -hmm. That's been a perpetual perspective on my career as an actor, on whatever this weird phenomenon of critical role is. I enjoy what we're doing right now because tomorrow it could all just, it could go, all away. just go away. It's weird, but it's how it is. If it did, if it did all go away, are you proud of how it's gone? Very, very. I could, I could step away from this right now and and spend the rest of my life thankful that I've had this opportunity and that I've, uh, you know, with me and my friends and all these great people I've had the chance to work with to create a space that in some way should perform helped, you know, a few people through mm -hmm. some dark times. Yeah, I'm super proud of all this and I would have no shame and no sadness about it going away. And uh, the, the longer it goes, the more I'm just blown away that it continues because yeah, I'm pretty, it's a gift. pretty happy and proud. It's a gift. Yeah, I think so. We've been friends for a while, obviously working a lot closer the last couple of years since I started working with you guys. Um, but a lot of people ask me about you. Um, you are so open and you're someone who is um, an, an empath, if I've ever seen the, the definition of the term <laughs> fleshed out. In, in a good way. Yeah. Um, when I hear you talk about someone else deserves this and they should be, you know, they're more qualified or I want them to have their moment in the thing. To me, that's coming from a place of empathy. Um, it's part of the imposter syndrome thing, but I also see a deep empathy in you. And I, I, I struggle with how to describe you to people, but I typically will describe you as a lighthouse and say, um, regardless of the weather, you always need one. It's a, something that draws people and says, here is where the safe place is. <laughs> and uh, when we talk about legacy, what does that term mean to you? When all this is said and done, not, not critical role, but you know, your career path, your trajectory, when, you know, it's not so much about how you want to be remembered, but 
what kind of legacy do you want to leave? What are the pillars of, of the legacy you want to leave behind? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I hope that any of those kids that grew up unhappy with themselves, unsure of themselves, trying to find some reason to stick around. Um, if my stories, if my work can somehow help them through those dark patches, that's more than I could have ever hoped on a broad legacy standpoint. I like to provide safe spaces and safe stories for people to create. I don't want, I don't want to create something to be consumed. I want to create something that invites and inspires people to carry that chain of creation. You know, the release of the Teldoray Guide was something I never anticipated, but something that was so special to me to put out there because it was something that I created, but created as a shell, created as, a, as an invitation to be like, here's something that I made, but I hopefully built enough pockets for you to take it and make it something even more special and personal to you. And so if I can continue to do that, in whatever paths in my career might be from here on out. It's fulfilling. Yeah, damn fulfilling. Uh, on a personal level, I want to be able to support my parents, mm. continue to support my parents. They, uh, they, they didn't, they weren't the classic parents that, you know, saved a lot of money and bought a house. And, you know, and when I grew up, they, they'll have something to leave me. Like my parents, every dime they made went to, providing experiences to us as a family, providing a childhood for me, my, me and my brother, to making sure that we can live in in zones where we couldn't afford to, just to so me and my brother could have a good you know, experience in a good school district. Um, in their later years, you know, I'm thankfully due to the success of Critical Role, I'm able to support them. Yeah. And even looking back on like, if, if things hadn't worked out how they had with Critical Role, God, I don't, I don't know where they'd be. Mm. Um, so I'm very thankful I hope to continue to give back to them to the end of their days for all that they gave me and Andrew I've often nourished, nourished a suspicion that and I think about this a lot when I think about you and I talk to you they say if you can make a living doing what you love then that's the ideal situation when I think about you, I think the only thing that could be greater than making a living doing what you love is making a difference doing it. And I just want to say, I hope you feel that way. Uh, I'm starting it. to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, so. yeah, there's, there's negativity out there. Sure, there's criticism. Sure, there's going to be people that say, you're playing the game wrong or you're doing this and that wrong or you're doing whatever else. But, um, you know, we just came back from a weekend in New York where we met hundreds of people that nobody comes up and says that. Yeah. All they do is come up and tell you how it's impacted their life and how it's made a difference. And um, as a storyteller, what more could you ask for? Not much else, really. couple hours from now you're gonna go sit at the table yeah <laughs> another another thursday another game I'm gonna sober up I'm gonna sober up I'm gonna not go yet. gonna go sit not yet yeah don't get don't get ahead of yourself you're gonna sit at the table 
Sam's going to open the show with some ungodly, maybe a wig, maybe who knows? Who knows with that one? Um, yeah, <laughs> it's always a toss up. Every week when you sit down and they count you in and it's about time, you've got a million thoughts going through your head. You've got imposter syndrome. You've got story beats. You've got elements. Um, you want everyone to have fun. You want everyone to have that experience. Is it still as fun for you as it was when you were a teenager and had that connection with it? Is it still as exhilarating? It's a business now. There's all these other things. There's all this stuff. You fight hard to lose to, to not lose track of that core thing that keeps it going. Yeah. Um, what, what, yeah. It's it's a worry. Definitely a perpetual worry as things continue to expand, whether or not we're ready for it. Everything has been so reactionary. Um, and we're just trying to keep up with it and, and keep it contained and protected. Um, I worry about that. Uh, but the moment I sit at that table and I get to look across from all these wonderful people and, and make eye contact and you know, engage in their banter and their laughter and and the general excitement everyone has of stepping back into the shoes of their character and asking how their day's been as we count down to that, that you know, mm -hmm. beginning of the show, uh, all that kind of washes away. And that's really heartening. Mm. And I think as long as we can hold on to that, I think we'll be okay. Cheers. Cheers to that. the longest your hair's ever been oh down to here like mid For back real? yeah how old that would have been high school mid high school <sighs> that must have taken a long time to really like oh yeah i just ponytailed it it was it was i was i looked like a miami drug dealer really yeah it was not it was not positive <laughs> you did wear a lot of uh tropical clothing when you were younger there was a lot of yeah, uh, man, i was florida and like yeah, trying to shrug off florida. yeah yeah because i think was it liam's one shot where he had you in that the oh, yeah. sort of yeah oh, back I was a looker through the ages man I was I looked like a series of Martin Short characters the most of my childhood <laughs> it was uh, it was something have you ever shaved your head oh god no really I lose my power short, what's the short oh wow that's yeah a good it's point. a Samson thing man it is Just a yeah what if all of a sudden you shave your head you get behind that DM screen you can't remember any of the rules that it's would like, not that surprise me at all connection would to not surprise thing. me at all what's the shortest <laughs> it's ever been the shortest it's ever been, I think, is has I've I've had it on the show. I think it was a few years ago. I oh, had yeah. somebody cut it super short. I remember that. And so uh, that was the shortest it's yeah, been. Yeah, it, I've hobbled through life. But I remember, even as a kid, it was it was at least bushy. Huh. Uh, I'm sure the shortest it's ever been was shortly after birth. But you know, I don't remember those years. Too yeah, much. you'd probably not. necessarily. I hope not. No, not really. <laughs> oh man, that'd be a little weird. It would be. <laughs> Talison always tells me he remembers every every moment of the nine months in the womb. Well, he would. He would. Well, to be fair, they had just invented childbirth at the time, so. That's important to hold on to those details over time. Yep. Plus the blood sacrifice that went into uh, conceiving him in the first place. <laughs> I love you, dude. Thank you. Love you too, buddy. Cheers again. Cheers again. Should we finish these? Uh, I shouldn't, but sure. Okay. Thank you to everyone who listened. My thanks to Matt for going to some really vulnerable and really profound places with me in this conversation. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can subscribe on iTunes or leave us a rating or review. As always, don't forget to love each other. We'll see you next time.